watching my fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes! It's me! I know it's been three weeks, but I'm still here. It's me. Keep clapping. Clap for the three-week miracle. Yes, thank you. How would we know that you are happy and ready for the miracle if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. You missed me last week because my power went out, as and that's why I have the guests that I was supposed to have last week. Uh, and you missed me the week before because I was at Freedom Fest, and the no, the week before I had a I had a guest. So it's been three weeks, but I am back right here with you, with me, with you right now, with you. Thank you so much. This is a Muddy Waters Media production. As always, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Anchor, Twitter, Periscope, iTunes, Google Play, Float, Switch, Twitch. And Switch, everywhere. Check us out everywhere. All podcasting platforms, all social media platforms, muddywatersmedia.com, anchor.fm slash muddywaters. Every single place, be sure to like us and follow us and subscribe to us and 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 re- review us at the, the five stars, whatever the highest number of stars is, and comment and share and do all the things that help the various algorithmi out there, algorithms out there. And of course, if you're watching us on YouTube, don't just press subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit that bell. I want your phone to explode with notifications every single time we go live. Every time we go live, I don't want you to miss out. Be sure to check us out. Uh, folks, next week, or no, this what, two days. In two days, I'm going to be in 
Florence, Kentucky, where I will do, among other things, I will be throwing out the opening pitch to a professional baseball game. So if you live anywhere near Florence, Kentucky, you're going to want to see that because this is going to go one of two ways. Either I'm going to throw it to the catcher where they are able to catch it without having to move too much, or I'm going to be ragged on for the entire rest of my natural life. Either one of those will be funny in their own special way. I'm hoping for the first one because it'll be more funny in how I act, how obnoxiously victorious I act when I do it. The other one will be funny, but at my expense. So I'm hoping that won't happen. But uh, be sure to come out. If you go to SpikeCohen.com, you can see the uh, there's a link there on how to uh, register for that. And uh, I'll be doing stuff with the Libertarian Party of Kentucky all that weekend. But it starts off with me throwing a shutout for the Florence Yalls. I'm calling it. No one is going to score a run while I'm on that plate. And hopefully the relief team can, you know, keep that momentum going after I'm after I'm done pitching. Uh, this episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing waffle-related caucus. <laughs> I say that. This isn't just the fastest growing waffle-related caucus anymore. This is now the fastest growing caucus in the Libertarian Party and the second largest caucus, not waffle related, just caucus period in the entire Libertarian Party, like literally the second largest in the party. That's a real thing. And you help to make that real. And if you aren't a member yet, go to the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus to become a member today. And if you want to become an official voting member, which means literally nothing because we don't we don't actually vote on it. We don't do anything uh, of any actual like political value. Uh, but if you'd like to become a voting member, whatever that means, go to muddywatersmedia.com slash store and uh, buy some sweet merch. And if you've got some Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus branded merch, then you become a voting member. Again, that means nothing. The Gravy King. Cumberland Cannabis. If you'd like to buy Delta 8, wink, wink, products uh, and other CBD, wink, wink, products uh, from Cumberland, Cumberland County, Cumberland County, Tennessee, uh, go to CumberlandCannabisCo.com. They are viable. They are ethical. And they are effective, wink, wink. Uh, If you want to buy something that's perfectly legal, I assure you. Go to CumberlandCannabisCo.com. Speaking of perfectly legal, Joe Soloski is running for Pennsylvania Pennsylvania governor. He is the key to Pennsylvania's success. And if you want to help him become the first libertarian governor in the history of mankind, go to JoeSoloski.com. That's J-O-E-O-S-O-L-O-S-K-I.com. Mudwater, the most appropriately named brand uh, sponsor we've ever had because we're muddy waters. If you woke up today and said, my God, if I never drink another cup of coffee in my life, it'll be too soon. I instead want to drink something made out of masala chai, cacao, mushrooms, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and literally nothing else. Then folks, I have some fantastic news for you. If you go to muddywatersmedia.com slash mud, you can buy some mud water today. It tastes like you like those combination of products would taste. You can imagine those ingredients together. They'd taste like that. You'll want to add some honey. But it's good for you. It's good for you. It gives you a little bit of pep. Not quite as much. It's got a one-seventh the caffeine of coffee, which is just enough to wake you up and just enough to not make you get all nervous about the mushrooms you just ate. Speaking of getting nervous, Jack Casey has written two books. What are they about? I'll never know because I'm not going to read them, and I never will. Because if they're bad, 
then I will feel bad about telling you to buy them for money. And if they're good, then I'll feel bad that I've been trashing the book for so long. So really, there's no upside to me reading it. Let me put the website in there. There's no upside to me reading it, but there's an upside to you reading it. Jack Casey, the writer, gets money every time you buy them. So the royal green and in silver throned it. These are books about jewelry that hate you or something like that. I don't know what that is. I, I, I don't know what this is about. There's a third book coming any day now called Crowned in My Gold. And if you want to buy these books, then that's certainly your right as an American to do. Go to royal, theroyalgreen.com and make possible cult leader Jack Casey wealthy today. Fierce Luxury by Ashley. I actually feel bad for this woman because she has a serious business and I try not my best not to trash it. High-end bags and accessories. She has some of the finest products. High-end bag and accessories consignment store based online. They carry the hottest brands like Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Gucci, and Hermes. Hermes. Consign with them for a 30% fee, which is 20% less than most consignment stores. That's what she told me. So I have no reason to disagree or not know if that's true because I've never consigned anything. If you find them online at FierceLuxuryByAshley.com and you can find them on Facebook in their exclusive group, Fierce Luxury by Ashley, because they stay on brand at all times. And speaking of on brand, Adderpan will give you a nervous breakdown, make you hate life for the rest of your life. For only $5 on Steam, you can play a game that makes five nights at Freddy's look like five nights at bitch. I don't really have a good segue there, but it's it's a this game is... I don't, I, here, I'll just read to you what I'm supposed to say about this, this game. Join Dolly and her haunted imaginary friends as you play the role of a school security guard trying to survive night shift, armed only with cameras and a flashlight. Can you make it until morning before they get a piece of you? I, I, this is, this doesn't portray how horrifying this game is. It's disturbing it's frightening, and it's full of, as they call it, jump scares, or as I call them, panic attacks. It's a terrible game, and if you're into hating, hating being awake, then be sure to get it on Steam for the low, low price of $5 plus the cost of therapy for the rest of your life and possibly for your children because you're going to traumatize them from having anything to do with this. Um, we also have another sponsor, we don't have an ad for, but Thomas Queter is running for state Senate in New York, District 52. And when I say run, he wants me to make a joke about the fact that he's in a wheelchair and that he's running, but I just I can't do it. I can't do it, Tom. I, you can do it, but I feel terrible to make that joke. But man, if you want to help someone who is basically using memes to run for office, go to Tom452TOMFOR52.com and you can be part of the meme magic. And man, has he really, I have a shirt of his and it's him in a wheelchair going across the sky like E.T. It's, this is, that's how he's campaigning. And God bless him for it. Uh, I think it's fantastic what he's doing. Uh, also, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. If these ads have made you want to sue someone, uh, then go to chrisreynoldslaw.com. And if you live in Florida, he can help you sue people for uh, real and perceived personal injuries. I mean, it would probably be best if they were real. Um, but he certainly will help you get as much money as any lawyer possibly can. ChrisReynoldsLaw.com. The intro and outro music to this and every single episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook. Go to his SoundCloud. Go to his Bandcamp. 
jodavimusic.bandcamp.com. Buy his entire discography. His newest album just dropped. Incredible stuff. Some of the best music you'll ever hear. It's like 25 bucks. Go there right now. Well, not right now. Go there after after the show's over. jodavimusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you, Joe Davi. I'd like to thank Waterloo, sparkling water, for this delicious sparkling water that I'm drinking on this episode of my sparkling what is what i don't even know what's in this it's not bad though and there's no sugar and it doesn't it's not sweet waterloo you can buy it at target this episode is brought to you by target no it's not but you can go and buy that today shout out to Tehran turks's mom and him as always folks my guest tonight is was my first guest and the reason i had him as my first guest is because i didn't know what the hell i was doing and i knew intuitively that I needed to offset that by having a guest who did in fact know what the hell he was doing. Uh, And so that's why he and and Paul Gordon and a couple of my other first guests were people that actually had experience in radio or on TV and could fill in the gap for me ending everything I said like I was asking a question because I was still very nervous about being in front of a camera. And so so he was a great guest. Um, He is uh, the former host of the Freedom Fiends radio show. He's currently the absentee landlord of the Lusander Show. He wrote this description. Uh, His website is lusandershow.com. And he's also a promoter and uh, past organizer of the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, uh, which you can go to mplfest.org. We'll be putting those... um, those links in the uh, in the show notes randomly, the show comments randomly throughout the night. Uh, but he is a, an incredible guy. Uh, if you like the things that I say and do, you can largely thank or blame him for it because he is uh, one of the main spike radicalizers. Uh, it was people like Matt Kibbe and, and Ron Paul who brought me to, I guess, the more uh, standard issue libertarianism. And it was Lou Sander and uh, Paul Gordon and a couple others who uh, just completely pushed me over the edge into the insanity that I'm in now. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show, Mr. Lou Sander. Lou, thanks so much for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, you're not the only one promoting things. My appearance is sponsored by Possum, the other, other white meat. Get some today. Get some today, Um, possum.gov. Yeah, it's incredible, man. So this is wild because literally this was, I mean, I have a much more professional setup than I did, but I was literally sitting in this corner the first time I did the show with you. And I just remember being like beyond nervous and having to tell myself, this doesn't matter. It's literally you talking with a friend and maybe four people are going to tune in to watch this thing. Why are you freaking out? And I was freaking out. And I literally just let you do most of the talking. So hopefully... I'm, well, I am less nervous now, but uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on, man. You are quite the smooth talker these days. I just listening to you do that <laughs> intro. You're an entirely different person from the last time that I was on, or the first time, because I've been on here. This is my third appearance. Yeah, but this you is are the third quite time. the talker. I don't, I don't know if you become the seasoned radio person or the seasoned politician or whatever, but you sure got a pretty mouth there, Spike. Somewhere in between. I'm in that weird space between podcast slash radio host and politician or both. Yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's both. But so you uh, you have a really before we get into all this stuff, because we have a few different things to talk about. But I always like to talk about people's Genesis story. And usually I don't do it if someone's already had has already been on the show. But that was like three years ago when I had like 12 people that would watch it. So can we talk a little bit about what brought you to you know, libertarianism, yeah, what, what your background yeah. on that? 
Yeah, and I, I can even give the Cliff Notes Theater version for it. So in 2008, when we had the housing collapse, I was just a typical normie walking around with my with my gray skin and my uh, single line eyebrows and, and everything else. <laughs> and I, I was thinking to myself, yeah, I, I was thinking to myself, wow, maybe capitalism is unstable and we just need the government to get in there and 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 fix things and, and, well, and yeah. run the show. Because, you know, you give these people the freedom and they're and they're just going to set the world on fire. You know, right. cause I, that's, that's the stuff that you learn in the, in the government schools and, uh, indoctrination gulags where they download the, the, the nonsense in there. And, um, I was also a neocon at the time, uh, unlike most neocons, I was a veteran. So I thought that the military was a wonderful way for the United States to impose our will around the world. Right. And yes, I meant it as ominously as that just sounded. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And and with with as little thinking uh, about that phrase as you could put into it. But anyway, so I, I'm seeing what's going on in 2008, and I wanted to I wanted to understand what was going on. So I I had some curiosity, and and granted, I would I probably was looking to confirm my own biases, but I nevertheless did have a genuine curiosity and what i found did not confirm my biases um so i started reading about investing and finance and economics and and there wasn't anything really groundbreaking in there and then i remember i was watching uh glenn beck and tom woods was on there and he started talking about the forgotten depression of 1920 and 21 yep and i'm like what in the world is this stuff i've never heard of it now they didn't talk about this in school. And I think, I think one of his articles is why you've never heard of this, <laughs> but anyway, um, so I, I went to his website and I read that article. I, I read it several times. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, this, this is just, no, this can't be. And I'm reading all the other articles on there and all these different things. And it's starting to explain stuff. I'm like, wait a minute. I, th- th- this is contrary to what I've been told. I, if it mm-hmm. wasn't for FDR and the New Deal, you know, we'd all be, we'd be ruined. Yep. Worms. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah, v- v- we we would all be speaking German. And and let me tell you, German's not easy to learn. Uh, quite frankly, when you look at some <laughs> of the words in German, that's the real reason Americans aren't speaking German. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's why Life an increasing number of Germans, German. uh, an increasing number of Germans aren't speaking German because of how you have to speak German. <laughs> Yeah, das ist genau richtig. But anyway, and by the way, I do speak German, mm. uh, which is why I know life is too short to learn it. But anyway, right. so I'm, I'm going through all this stuff, and then I find the Mises Institute. And I also uh, was watching some of his videos after after I had consumed all the all the written media. I was watching videos, and that was my first time using YouTube. So YouTube was still kind of kind of pretty new at the time. And I'm, I'm going through all this stuff. And I'm just sucking up all this information like a sponge. You know, it, it it's kind of like the the YouTube rabbit hole where you see a song from high school on on the side, and you say, "Oh, well, let me click on that," and and you keep seeing more songs. You keep clicking, and next thing you know, it's Monday morning. It's time to go back to work. Right, right. So. Right. So I was going through all these different rabbit holes and reading all these different articles, listening to to podcasts, watching videos, sometimes doing all three at the same time, and just starts sucking all this stuff up. And and the way that they explain things 
Austrian economics doesn't rely on a bunch of waving magic wands and and stealing underpants to create giant profits. They right. they actually tell what's in phase two of how you get from stealing underpants to turning to giant profit. profits. Right. right. Yeah. So th- th- there's actually something there where with a lot of the uh, pro-government schemes, they will say that the government declared that everybody will, will be well-fed and they were well-fed. And on the, on the eighth day, they rested and banned some stuff. But so with that, I just, now here, here's the thing. I didn't fall into that min status trap. Uh, my min status phase lasted about five minutes, something like that. Because the information that they provided is um, explaining how things work, talking right. about incentives, and, and this is going to lead, lead into our main topic, but talking yeah. about incentives and disincentives, cooperation, yeah. why people do the things they do, also looking at the perverse incentives, uh, the, the way that things go wrong, and you know, particularly through cronerism and all this other stuff. Uh, right, as, right. as a perfect example, and Tom talked about this in one of his uh, presentations, he was talking about James J. Hill, the creator, founder of the Great Northern Railroad. So James J. Hill, and I've done a little bit of additional research on him, he, he was born dirt poor, but everybody in the 1800s was dirt poor. Even the wealthy people were impoverished because, right. you know, Nobody could nobody could jump on a plane and, and go to Cancun for a weekend, period. So, you know, they well, didn't much have refrigerators. Less talk to every talk to any single human being on Earth from yeah. yeah. There's no comparison, right? Yeah, right. they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have automobiles. Right. You know, a, a person's mobility. I mean, th- there were a lot of people that would never go more than a few miles from their from their homestead in their lifetimes. Right. right. So right. all the things that we take for granted today didn't even exist yet. So. And also, I think he was missing an eye, and his dad died when he was 10. So here we have this guy, definitely not a silver spooner, not somebody who's born into privilege. I really hate that word. That's that's stupid. But um, he winds up buying this defunct railroad and turning it into the most successful railroad at the time. And he didn't take any government handouts. There were no land grants. And by land grants, I mean... The government said, here, you can have this land. And yes, we will send the military to clear those Indians out for you. Right, right, right. Yeah, and by clear them out, I don't mean, you know, dropping an eviction notice and asking them to leave and give them a discount coupon to U-Haul. I mean, they cleared them out. They went they went in and killed them, chased them off. And, yeah, in know, fact, the, the I, ones I, that I survived. A, I, I have a side note there. So I was at uh, uh, Freedom Fest uh, a couple weeks ago. And we're, they had it at Rapid City, which is like 20 minutes from Mount Rushmore. So I went to, to Mount Rushmore one of the nights uh, with some other people. And, of course, we're all libertarians, so we're all pretty red-pilled mm-hmm. about American history. And we knew that, you know, where we were was the site of what used to be a very thriving Sioux community and that the, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, the the Six Grandfathers Mountain that they've, you know, carved a, a portion of it to make Mount Rushmore and all this stuff. And so, or the, the, the Mount Rushmore presidential memorial and all that stuff. And so we're already like, you know, kind of whatever. So we're, they, we got there that night and before they light up the, uh, the display of the president's faces, they play this video 
and the video kind of gives this very patriotic, you know, brief rundown, daily uh, Reader's Digest version of the history of those four presidents. And it is the most, I mean, we could spend an hour just talking about how whitewashed it was. <laughs> but the, the one that had even the normies there put out audible gasps was it said, you know, because it was talking about Thomas Jefferson and, and, you know, it said that he once talked about a time when us we and the red men will be a, will be able to live together in respect and harmony or something like that. And it says, now, sadly, it took many years for uh, President Jefferson's dream of harmony with the natives to come to pass. During much of the 1800s, there was great disagreement between our people, which resulted in a drastic decline in the native population. And it was like, and everyone, and and it was like they really said that, right? Like everyone oh knows God. what – even the people that don't know the, the specific history, everyone knows, you know, it came, took their land. There was a lot of fighting. Natives got killed. They just got destroyed, massacred left and right. Like they know that, right? So it wasn't like people didn't know that. And they said it in the most like – if you had to come up with the most sanitized way to talk about a genocide of people, right? And, and we gasped. But then we heard everyone else gasp, too. It was like, oh, that's how they choose to talk about it. It was the funniest thing. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just find that and hilarious. Did they respond with that wasn't real disharmony? No, that shut up. At, at the the, 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 the uh, park ranger there should have said, well, you know, that wasn't, you know, the real Jefferson's vision, which I guess it wasn't. Holy crap. That is more Jackson's vision. Jackson was yeah. really good on banks, but unfortunately he had the same policy for Indians. So yes. Yeah, so that's accurate. Um, James J. Hill he negotiated rights of ways with with the Indian tribes out there, rather than having the military go kill them. And he also built up a, along his rail lines. So he he had towns built up in there, and of course there were lumber mills and all these different things. So there's industry around there, and right. because he did not take any money from the the government the, the subsidies. He had to be more frugal with, it, with with how he spent his money. So right. because he was paying out of his own pocket, he built his rail line straight and he avoided the big hills. He also avoided the swamps, the wetlands and everything else. Because when you're spending your own money, you want to avoid doing, you know, really dumb stuff. Now, with the subsidized railroads, they were getting a premium for having to go through wetlands and swamps. They were getting right. a premium for having to build on, on hills and they got paid by the mile. So they didn't miss a swamp. They didn't miss a, a hill and they twisted around looking like something at an amusement park, like, like, like a corkscrew ride or something like that. Right. And incidentally, that's part of why roads have as many curves as they do because it's subsidized by the mile. And then the subsidized firms got extra money to repair them in the springtime after the winter, but James J. Hill, because he was spending his own money, he built his rail lines to last. And incidentally, he was uh, the first person to cross the Rocky Mountains, and he also invented the switchback to do it. And the what happened was he sent out a scout to find the absolute lowest point in the Rocky Mountains and to, to find a way to get up there to without cross, yeah. having this great expense and just all the, all the stuff that, that goes along w with trying to, trying to uh, cross a mountain range with the train. 
And he was successful in that. And he was charging unbelievably low rates uh, when the, when the, politically connected cronies were charging exorbitant rates he was charging lower rates and profitable they were losing their butts on, on this thing but they also right. had a lot of strings attached you know if you go to a congressman to to get funding in his district well he's going to want you to set up a bunch of stops in the district and right. and hit all the different things so it's when you get in bed with government you catch the diseases that it carries Right, and right. if you look at John D. Rockefeller, I mean the the number of in, new inventions that came about because of because of uh, uh, the Standard Oil and, and their innovations, you know, it was unbelievable. I, there's like two or three hundred new products that were invented that didn't exist before, and the prices on on all these things dropped. Now it used to be that they used whale oil for lanterns. Yep. And it was prohibitively expensive. So how, how are poor, moderate, you know, people of modest means supposed to illuminate their homes at night? Now, and you got candles, but I mean, candles aren't that great. But if you have an oil lamp and you're using kerosene and it's a fraction of what it used to be for yep. buying whale oil, and not to mention the whales were pretty happy about right. not being killed so that people could light up their houses. So there, Rockefeller there actually a, the, did more than Greenpeace. Car- there's a political yeah there's a political cartoon uh from that time that i like to show uh that i like to i think i did it this earth day um and uh and it's like a cartoon of like uh whales celebrating at a party and they're all wearing like fancy suits and it all says like hooray john rockefeller and you know hip hip hooray standard oil and it was you know because they're not going to kill us anymore for our oil and um right it was just funny yeah it was just this funny thing that even back then they recognized that there was like an ecological and environmental benefit and wildlife conservation benefit to switching to fossil fuels from whales. Mm-hmm. So I, well, the, the people that are labeled as the robber barons were actually the benefactors of society. And the real robber barons were the politicians that were, that were robbing everybody to give their money away. Right. It, it's, it's just absolutely ridiculous. By learning something like that uh, helped to, helped to lead me along the way learning that people can cooperate or or was it um carl fisher built the the lincoln highway going from san francisco to philadelphia and the the dixie highway going from miami beach up to indianapolis it may have even eventually gone into canada no toll booths no tax dollars he went around to to businesses and corporations and solicited funding for it hell woodrow wilson even cut a check for five grand out of his own personal account because he thought that idea was good. And this is the early right. 1900s. So it's not like it's not like building roads was as easy as it is today. Right. So yeah, you didn't have the you didn't have the fancy equipment that we have today. So I why why on earth do do we need somebody that can't even get the 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 mail delivered efficiently to right. make a big flat spot on the on the land so that vehicles exactly. can drive on it. To put asphalt to the ground. Yeah, that's we yeah. need him for that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, Lysander Spooner and the Great American Mail Company is a perfect example of yep. outcompeting the post office. They have they have a freaking monopoly and they still lose. Yeah, I had so I had someone say to me, "Well, but that's proof that the free market can't um, can't innovate." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, because the 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 po- the Lysander Spooner's postal service failed." I said, "It didn't fail. They shut it down. Like they didn't allow them to compete. How was that a failure? That proves that the that you know that it w- w- they shut him down because he was doing better than them." 
Yeah. Well, nope. Nobody was calling for reforms of, of UPS, FedEx, the great American letter company or any of that other right. stuff. They're not in constant state of reform. And here's one for you. The post office sucks so bad that people do online, uh, save the post office campaigns. They, they yeah. do it on Twitter. They do it on, on, on Facebook. They do it via email. They don't, write a letter to their friends saying, Hey, it's really important that we save the post office, slap a stamp on it and wait three days for it to get delivered on the other side of town. If it doesn't get lost, I mean, come on. I never made that connection. Yeah. I think about it. I I bet the post office even has a Twitter. Why don't they, why don't they send letters to all their customers to share the information? Wow. So these are the kinds of things that brought you to libertarianism, just realizing the, the utter absurdity of the, of the statist argument. Uh, yeah. And then, and then go ahead. And, 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 and government is basically just a self-looking ice cream cone. It exists solely for its own aggrandizement. Right. Now, I, if you look at how many problems exist today, you know, things that are, that are really serious, like the housing and education, these were all political platforms not too long ago. The yeah. war on drugs was a political platform. Uh, if you've ever listened to Chris Kelton in the Hi- Historical Controversies podcast from uh, Mises Institute, it mm-hmm. he hasn't done any episodes in a while. He he took a break to work on finishing his PhD or something like that. I wish he'd go back because he's very good. Uh, he's right up there with Prof. CJ. But um, there there was a senator that was looking for an issue to get on, or senator or congressman, and the the they already had the war on poverty uh the war on communism with vietnam so he 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 decides that he's going to do tough on crime and all the stuff that a lot of the stuff that we see as part of the war on drugs right now came about from that era you know the civil asset forfeiture the no-knock raids the militarization of of cops and turning turning everything from andy griffith into into uh uh, delta force going in and stomping down doors so when you when you look at that, I mean, there's there's a utilitarian argument against government, and I'm I'm sorry, but like the the many statists out there that are like, well, we need a limited government. Why? For what? They make a lot of arguments as to why small government is better than big government, and I'll right. agree with them. But yes. they don't make a but they don't make an argument for why we must have a limited government to begin with. Yeah. Now. And it's amazing how many times people will say, and and, and there's somebody on Facebook. I I, I do appreciate her, but I, I kind of give her a lot of a lot of grief over it. Uh, she'll talk about how the how the post office can't do this, and and talk about how horrible government is, and how destructive, and and everything else, and yet doesn't draw the connection of, you know, well, get rid of it because I they're not. Nobody's making any arguments for why it must exist. Roads will exist. They, they've existed in the past outside of government. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of road building has been outside of government. But, you know, the, they're like, we need a limited government. Why? They, they can't why? deliver the post op, the, 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 the mail, but they can handle the, the police courts and military. The three things yeah. are guaranteed to bring us back to the government that we have right now. Right, exactly. And that's the thing is they'll say something like, well, you know, government is just so uh, uh, untrustworthy and so bloated and so prone to corruption that we should limit it 
to the core structures of our society, the very things we need to function, which will inevitably lead to it being involved in everything else. Like you said, it is, it, right. it is that, you know, that, that minarchist argument. And again, I have lots of minarchist friends and allies and everything else. I'm willing to work with anyone on, on trying to break down what we have now, but I love having these discussions where I'm like, okay, but why? Like, okay, great. We agree that this government's terrible. We agree it needs to be way smaller. Where's the laugher curve? Like, where is this, this change where suddenly lack of government becomes, oh, well, then it's going to be really bad. Why? Like, what? what is the thing, you know, and they'll say, the, oh, the warlords will take over. Okay, yes, we could return to the status quo that we have now of warlords taking over. Yeah, the worst thing no they can think of is that it would look like it does right now. That's the worst thing they can come up with. Literally. That it would look like it would look like governments that have already existed. They'll say without government, another Stalin would pop up. Oh, really? Stalin didn't have a government? Right. Seriously? Yeah. What do you think the origin of government is, Spike? Uh, so someone recently told me this. It was the uh, or it was a, it might have been you, actually. The ditch bosses of of Babel of the of the Mesopotamian. That 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 was the first what could be considered a government was when they were trying to figure out how to allot the water that was coming out of irrigation, that it was basically these, for lack of a better word, uh, gang leaders who would kind of take over and be like, all right, you get this much water, you get this much water, and you all have to give me a certain amount of money for me to make sure you're getting as much water as you want. And that was sort of the first structure of something resembling government. Are, is, are you saying something different? Uh I don't know if I would use that specific example, but uh, as far as like the concept of government, um, what the way that I believe that it happened, and there's th there is evidence to support this, but uh, the origins of government is, wait for it, here it comes, drum roll, war wars took over, so. Ben Stone on the on the Bad Quaker podcast was talking about this, and I, I believe it was called Conquest Siri. So you have a bunch of of robbers going around and they're looting and pillaging. Now this required uh, the population to be sedentary and staying in one place, so it doesn't work on hunter gatherers, and it also requires. Uh, above ground agriculture so if you've ever if you're familiar with james c scott and the art of not being governed and i believe his book is called against the grain maybe uh, it talks about how states have always used a grain type agriculture as a way to uh uh spread and, and, and infest things because grains are, are very easy to tax. They're predictable on when they're going to grow. Uh, they're right. easy to destroy if the, if the victims aren't uh, conforming and, and allowing themselves to be victimized. So it, right. it makes it really easy for a state to, to get in there and, and get their share of the loot. So hmm. and I, I think Murray Rothbard even talked about this in maybe anatomy of the state. Um, so you got a bunch of robbers that, that go around and in order to keep from having a counterattack, uh, they, they basically kind of took over and said, all right, we're going to give you protection from other warlords. So you have to have us warlords. Otherwise, the other warlords are going to get you, which is really the, the men's status argument that warlords would, took, would take over. So that's probably the origin. And right. now the, the thing that you got to remember is when, when, when you're dealing with People that are basically doing subsistence at farming, well, they got they do have surplus because having the grains and everything else. But um, 
you can't have a bunch of people robbing just a few people that don't have a whole lot. That, that's a poor way to make a living. So it's, it's a smaller group that has to take on a bunch of smaller groups or take on one larger group. And when you're, when you're looking at the sheer numbers, if you have, if you have a fair number of people with martial skill in that group and they're able to defend themselves. And the story that Ben told was, I believe it was about Jericho where the, the state, it, as we, as we recognized it had existed for maybe about 2,500 years, something like that. And then it got absolutely destroyed. So the, I guess the archeological evidence has been so long since I've listened to this podcast, the archeological evidence points toward, towards uh, uh, all the things that we would associate with the state, like the, the, the type of buildings that they had, the defenses, right, right. the armory and, and, and things like that. And it sounds like uh, it sounds like the the people of Jericho finally had enough of it. They they fought back and they burned everything in place to include the loot that had been stolen. So I mean, it, it certainly makes sense that that would be the origin of government, right? right and it right. and it still it still works on the mafia model, except it's not as well dressed. It's also the human trafficking model. So if you listen to, yeah. to some of the arguments of like, well, if it wasn't for us, you'd be completely vulnerable and out there. And who knows what would happen to you? That's literally what pimps and, and sex traffickers say to their victims and to their prostitutes is, you know, you won't make it out there without me. I'm the one keeping you safe. You know, we're going to make this money together and I'm going to make sure that you're taken care of. And meanwhile, mm -hmm. they're just literally using them, making them go out there and, and or not making them, but, you know, convincing them to go out or in some cases making them the traffickers, mm -hmm. making them or coercing them or, or you know, uh, swindling them into going out there and, uh, you know, doing what they need to do to get money and then taking all or most of the money for themselves and controlling their, their victims. But they're literally using the same arguments. If it wasn't for me, you, you know, someone else would come in and be even mm -hmm. worse to you. And if it wasn't for yeah. me, you'd get trafficked and victimized. So you got to stay with me. And of course, for those that say, well, that's not enough, they have to use whatever force and violence necessary to keep them in check while while you know you know uh, hoodwinking the rest of them and it's it's literally mm -hmm. the same thing it's just on a mass scale yeah and, and pimps and, and traffickers are a result of the prohibition on prostitution in the sex oh, absolutely trades. oh yeah now it, it, it's like uh, it's like um they're complaining about people crossing the border and going across people's property and they're saying look these people have no respect for private property they're littering and they're doing this that and the other thing blah 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 and and when you think about it, why are they crossing in the middle of the desert why aren't they taking the highway and you know driving through the through the little checkpoint and and all yeah. that other stuff or or just driving across the border because there's not a checkpoint you know right. the, the whole the whole immigration policy should be called no coyote left behind. Nobody hires a coyote to get them across the border when they could buy a ticket on Greyhound. Right. Exactly. So this is a problem created by immigration policy. So we actually have, oh yeah, no, the, the all of these things are created by a bad policy. Yeah. We're going to actually talk about how that applies in, to some extent to the homeless situation. But we have a question for you from uh, Nulik Trupp. Uh, she says, legit question, how would justice look like uh, in an anarchist society, a society meaning enforcement of legit crimes in an anarchist environment. That's the one issue that kind of keeps her as a minarchist is how would, you know, dealing with, you know, rapists and murderers and kidnappers, mm -hmm. what would that look like in a society without a even minimal, minimal state? So 
One of the things about a market-based society, um, what would she like it to look like? And if she could type in like some things that she wants to see, some results, uh, and then you can share it with me, that would be great. So there, there's been a lot of theorization about this. Um, Bob Murphy wrote Chaos Theory, and it, it talked about defense and it talked about justice. Uh, I believe that in the Bible, the book of Judges talks about how how this was how this stuff was done so there is a market for dispute resolution there's a market for mediation arbitration because it exists right now and it exists in the private sector because trying to trying to go through the government courts is such a nightmare so government courts is actually no private arbitrator or mediator left behind so it's very important that she mentioned the legit crimes about rape and all this other stuff. So I believe in the Bible, it talked about not, not just the judges, but there would be areas where people would be banished. So if you have people that have committed great serious offense offenses, they would get banished off to um, no man's land, whatever you want to call it. And while they are there banished, um, they would be safe. But if they stepped out of there, they're fair game. So they would be outside the protection of the law in, in that regard. But if you look at restorative justice, so an eye for an eye doesn't mean that you have to have an eye for an eye. It means that no more than an eye for an eye. So if if I were to rob you, uh, you know, I, I would have I would have to compensate you for what you lost, obviously. And because of the inconvenience, I'd probably be assessed an asshole tax for it. So when you start looking at, at, at restorative justice, making the victim whole, how is somebody made whole by somebody being uh, locked in a cage? So let, let's say somebody let's say somebody robs you. And, and Clarence Darrow wrote an article about this early in the 20th century. The, the, the robbery victim may as well not even report it because he's going to get robbed twice. The, the original offense, and then he's going to be robbed to pay for the incarceration of this person. Mm. <coughs> ah, sorry about that coughing attack so what do you, i i guess what do we really want out of this because when we look at the punishment culture um we have a highly we, we have a, a a very large prison population here in the u.s and there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of bad stuff that that comes out of prison uh as far as what happens to the person that goes in i, I believe there's a I, I can't remember who said this, uh, but basically that if somebody goes to prison for harm or if somebody commits a crime against themselves, which vice is basically a crime against yourself, the punishment right. ought not to be worse than uh, what you've done to yourself. So when we look at the psychological impact that incarceration has on people, even a short period of time incarceration is going to be extremely traumatic. And the long-term mental health impact on that person is going to be bad. It's it's going to be very bleak. So here you have a person that is not being productive, meaning they're not benefiting society in any way, shape, or form. And some if, if somebody's doing a menial job somewhere and somebody's willing to pay them for it, I view that as productive. 
Right. So I, they don't they don't have to be doing great things, but they're not being productive. And as a matter of fact, their productivity when they come out is going to be a lot worse than it would have been. So what does society gain? Not that society was the victim of a robbery. You know, Spike was the victim of a robbery or right. whoever it was. And this collectivization, this idea that we are, you know, society has been victimized, has created this environment where, um, people become the the worst form of parasite the stakeholder well, and, and i remember and, i was watching and, and you as you said you know even if you apply that model what does this society gain yeah. from someone for example being put in a cage because they robbed someone instead of saying hey listen you got to pay this person back you've got to you know get a productive job you got to you know go in and do something with your life if there's a mental health issue that led you to do this you need to get help and so forth as opposed to saying well, okay, we're putting you in a cage for X number of months and not addressing any of the, not addressing the victim that you harmed, not addressing what may have led you to do that, not addressing right. anything at all or, or telling you to do anything, but actually sticking with a criminal record that's going to make you more likely to commit the crime. But let's say, say for example, a situation where you have, you know, and again, I'm, I am going to extremes so that we can test these things, a mass murderer, a serial killer, someone where, you know, there's a vested interest in making sure that this person doesn't harm others, not just a thief uh, or mm -hmm. even someone who committed assault or or something like that, but someone who is like a, an active danger to the lives of many people. How How is something like that dealt with in, a, in an anarchist society? And some, some of the questions here, when they're saying, well, who even determines laws or, or, or uh, you know, determines what the standards are? Uh, and I think this is part of the thing is is in an anarchist society, it doesn't say that there's no governance. It says there's not a state. So everyone is right. voluntarily a part of that. Everyone is voluntarily a part of whatever funding needs to be involved. It's not just a vote uh, for a system that you aren't allowed to opt out of. Everyone is allowed to opt in or out. And as a result, everyone is is you know working together and building a consensus on what their standards are. So that's the key difference. It's not that there wouldn't I think be you governance. Well, you just answered it. So yeah. here, here's one for you. You got a you got a group of people that's all together, and we're gonna, since we're going to be talking about the fest, let's talk about the people that go to that fest. There's right. not a there's not a list of rules written down on what's going to happen there, but there is right. a consensus in how people are going to behave. Um, there's there's no law out there that says you don't walk into a room and criticize everybody's mother and insult her and denigrate her, but. Right that we don't see this happening all the time. Um, and most of the time when it does happen, it's people doing it in jest. So you don't, why don't people go in and insult everybody else's mother walking in the door? Why doesn't that happen? There's no law against it. Yeah. So what we have is that there's a lot of unspoken or maybe even agreed upon, uh, but this, it's not official there's the, the way that people interact is it's, it's rather spontaneous and uh, contrary to the Hobbesians, I, I believe that humans have a very strong interest in cooperation and getting along, avoiding conflict and things like that. If they, if we didn't, then the, the, the species would have died out a long time ago. We never right. would have made it to 7 billion people. It, it would it have died at like 500,000. Yep. Right, right. Yeah, because when they say, you know, Hobbes, uh, the, the nature of man, or man in a state of nature is constantly at war with himself, and that government exists to, to 
uh, keep that from happening. Well, government is made of men. And it, when you look at the number of wars that have happened by government, you now you could change Hobbes's thing around and you could, you could actually prove him right that the, the man in a state of nature is constantly at war with himself. And to illustrate this, he created government to facilitate that nonstop war. Right, right, right. So you, you, you can't have it both ways. Right. No, unless you're anti. Well, that's that's so, like these are the these are the questions you ask me. If people can't be trusted yeah. with freedom, how can they be trusted with power? If they can't be trusted with power, why can't they be trusted with freedom? If only some people can be trusted with power, why are we trusting everyone else we don't trust for their own freedom to decide who has that power? Like it just it's it's self defeating. It's a self defeating argument. Right. If you elect politicians to to come up with the answers to things that you don't understand. Now, to deal with the things that are beyond your capabilities, how are you to know which politicians are best suited to do that if you don't have enough knowledge? Right, right. So here, here is, here's the thing that came up, and I, I actually want to address this one. Steve South says, so then criminals would be allowed to opt out of laws. If someone goes into a voluntary society that has a set of standards and they decide to break those standards, they get removed. And the, the way that they are – well, they get a few things. They can either change their behavior – Depending on the severity of what they do, they can either change their behavior, restore whatever victims they had to that and and make amends and, and move forward, or they can be removed from that society. And since we're now talking a series of private properties and not some commons that we all are, are forced into association on, that can now be easily done. And obviously the the level of how far, you know, if we're talking they commit murder, well, then they might not make it out of there or they might end up, you know, being put somewhere where they can't hurt anyone else for at least quite some time. If it's something like they go around insulting people and that's not acceptable in that community, then they get a chance to, to, to make good on it or they get told that they're not allowed to be there anymore. And again, because it is a series of private properties that are voluntarily associated with each other, the it is now you are now trespassing on one or more people's private property by not by, by not keeping with their standards. So that's that's how there are going to be people that say I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. Great, you can go not agree with that somewhere else where people are okay with that or on your own property. Well, there, l let me add to that. I, so if there's not a law saying that you can't kill people, there's also not a law saying that somebody can't kill you for killing their family member. <laughs> yes. All right. So when, when you look at um, like polycentric law, Zir law in Somaliland, which goes back uh, several thousand years and, and even uh, even like with the judges. And I don't know specifically that it's in the Bible. I'm, I'm not I'm not a I'm not a believer. So when, when I talk about the Bible, I'm not, I am not a theology uh, expert by any stretch of imagination. I reference some stuff that I heard and remember. But right. if, if you look at what has happened, uh, because there is a need to uh, keep order, there's a desire to keep order, there's a market demand for settling disputes. Um, the judges, and they were judges because they were people that were respected. It was like the natural aristocracy that Thomas Jefferson talked about um, or wrote about there are people that because of their accomplishments, their their virtue, their wisdom, they are well respected and they are trusted by people in the community. So like if you and I if you and I are having a disagreement and we say, you know what, let's let's have Matt decide on this. You're you're right. one of your co hosts. Yeah, you know, yeah. because we both respect his judgment and everything else, and we right. will agree to abide by whatever he says. Now that's that's what that is. People 
th- this whole human interaction thing is really not that complicated. And right. I think a lot of times the, the belief systems do complicate it, but you know, something else, if, if we don't look at crime as like a, a criminal thing, we look at it as a civil thing as a, uh, uh, a violation of a, of an individual's rights and right. they say you know hey uh, you know i have a problem because you did this to me and and we need to settle this right. and you don't bring all the public into it and collectivize it and everything else i remember i was right. watching bill o'reilly and his website got hacked and uh he was talking about this on a show and he says he says, you know what, the, the, the kid that hacked it, it was like some lefty kid that would, did it because he hated O'Reilly because O'Reilly was a different flavor of statism. And he says, you know, I met with the kid and I saw his situation and I saw that he would not be, you know, justice would not be served by putting this kid in jail and having, you know, the, the, the wife be on her own or the girlfriend, whatever, and the kid not having the dad around for however long he was going to be incarcerated. He said, look, it's my website. So I decided what happened. And that was like the perfect lesson on property rights. And I really wish that he would go back and rewatch that episode. But here I was, you know, burn that kid because he broke the law. And and so you can see how far I've come here. You know, I wasn't (laughs) the victim, but I made myself the victim. I co-signed O'Reilly's victimhood. He broke your social contract. He broke your social contract that you agreed to at some point when you were born or conceived or during gestation or whatever. Yeah, I I, I signed it in the womb and then I came out and said, here I am. (laughs) I need, can somebody notarize this? So I just, just little concepts like that. When, When you put a little bit of thought into it and when you question because most people speak in, in narratives or they speak in slogans and talking points, not real ideas. So when I hear somebody talk about get back to the constitution, limited government, I think to myself, now there's somebody who has no thoughts or ideas whatsoever. Now he should go sit over there with the vote harder people. And because I mean, <clears throat> and there's, there's no substance there. It's, it's all, it's all emotional in that regard. They're kind of like the wokesters, but, one other thing that brought me over, and I, I have to credit Tom Woods for this again. Um, I remember listening to an ep, uh, a lecture that he was doing, and he talked about the war prayer by uh, Mark Twain. And for those of you out there that are listening, Google this sometime, read it. Uh, there was a, a, a version on YouTube that was narrated by Peter Coyote. And this struck such a chord with me. Uh, Twain had written this around the Spanish-American War time, uh, but he said they didn't want to publish it until after he was dead because he knew the Jingos and, and, and imperial dipshits would, would just go crazy and, and want to kill him if, if it was read while he was still alive or published while he was still alive. And it talks about... Um, the people in the town, they're, they're, the sons are getting ready to march off to war, and they're all gathered at the church, and they're doing the, you know, the the, the service before they take off and, and go to uh, defend their country by invading somebody else or whatever. Right. And protecting uh, our freedoms over there. Yeah. Yeah. So the so the the priest is up there, and he says, you know, dear Lord, protect our boys and bring them home safely and blah, blah, blah. And this, this tattered man goes up there. He looks like a rag picker and he goes up to the pulpit and he takes a priest spot and says, 
uh, I have heard your prayer and I am here to confirm your wishes, basically. And it says, and it's an example of what is seen and what is unseen. Um, and he says, when you ask for, uh, for me to, when you ask for God to protect your sons, you are, you are asking God to kill their sons, right. uh, for for your guys to shoot straight is for their bullets to uh, make widows and orphans of their wives and children and, and all this all this stuff and and this is where I really saw the immorality of war and this struck such a chord with me I and this this really hit me so hard and I could not unhear it and I remember um, they're talking about the surge in Iraq and I'm like yeah get in there and oh wait oh crap I heard that and and. It, it really brought me to see the horror of war for what it was, uh, organized murder, uh, murder on a mass scale with flags. Yes. With lots and, of flags. and that was when I had to shed my neocon ways. So uh, I, that in a nutshell, I, there's other stuff in there, but realistically, uh, Tom Woods was my red pill. And for those who are wondering, no, I haven't listened to Glenn Beck in a long time. That's funny. Yeah, no, I, it's it's funny because we both came from the neocon, uh, I guess, faith or whatever you want to call it, the neo, neocon belief system. And, and it's yeah, funny it, how, how it, as far as the religion of statism goes, the neocons are kind of the Wahhabis. Yeah. Well, they, you know, they say that the, 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 the moderate neocon uh, you know, bombs your village while the, the, or no, the, the radical neocon bombs your village while the moderate neocon stands back and watches. Um, the, uh, so let's talk about a specific issue that I know, I know is, is near and dear to your heart and mine as well. Um, and it's something that I've actually been touching on a lot this year. Um, it was something that I saw last year campaigning, um, I was struck by the number of people because last year during the campaign, we almost all the events that we had to do were outdoors, both because mm -hmm. it was nice out and it was a good place to have lots of people show up, but also because of the lockdowns and, and most large events and arenas and things like that were either closed or had limited occupancy. So it was just easier to say, all right, we're all going to meet at this park and, uh, you know, make a make, make a day long thing out of it. And so what would happen is. Uh, especially because these were free events, a large number of um, of homeless people and and people that were close to homelessness, people that were living in their cars and things like that, would come to my events and ask questions. And you know, in in their mind, I mean, a lot of times these were people that were living in or near these parks and these other places that we would pick. And so in their mind, it's like, hey, you want to come into my backyard? I got some questions for you. You know, you're saying you want to run for something, and it was. It was I've I've always recognized that government was making that problem worse. And I always recognized that it was a much more um, complex and nuanced problem than either the I guess the the people that say they're compassionate for the homeless or the people that, you know, say we got to be tough on the homeless want to recognize that it is. But it really struck me the number of them that were actually saying like, well, what is your what is a solution to this or what will help alleviate the problems that, that we're going through? And so, you know, coming into this year, because I often said, listen, I honestly don't know what the best solution is for your area, which is why I believe as a libertarian that your community should be empowered to decide that instead of it being decided at the at the, the state level, much less the federal level. Clearly, they've screwed it up so much that you're here living in the in the you know, in the woods. So uh, clearly that 
that's not where your solution is going to come from. But this year, I really wanted to, to dive into that and say, well, okay, even though I'm not going to know in every community what's needed, I definitely want to be further along the Dunning-Kruger scale here and actually know what it is I'm talking about. And so I visited a number of uh, you know homeless camps, and I've, I've talked with a lot of people that are formerly homeless and homeless uh, people. I've met, I've, I've gone to a lot of um, nonprofits and charities and mutual aid societies that are helping to meet the needs of homeless people in various areas. And, you know, it's, it's opened my eyes a lot to the, the, the multiple different issues that are going on. And when you reached out and said that you have a, uh, you know, you have some very strong thoughts about this, I thought, well, who better to, to have on to talk about it? So, you know, talk to me, talk to us about, I guess, first of all, your, you know, your, your background in dealing with, um, uh, uh, you know, homeless people to the extent mm-hmm. that you can. And, um, and then also, you know, kind of, I guess, your thoughts on what's missing here. What, what is missing that's causing this problem to keep getting worse? Yeah, it is an extremely nuanced subject. Uh, like, most, like most things are, a lot of people yeah. are very, uh, they, they, they take a glance at it. It bothers them and the do somethingism pops out and yes. they start saying somebody needs to do something. And well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, in a lot of cases, the doing something is actually worse than doing nothing. And as a matter of fact, there's something that uh, like the old time social workers will say, there's, there's a, there's a couple phrases that I'm going to use. One is don't just do something, stand there. And the other is you can never work harder than your client. So my experience with uh, the homeless population and homelessness comes from uh, part of my background. So going back uh, many years, I've been a hub operations supervisor at UPS. I've been a sales manager in the insurance and financial services industry. And I am of course a veteran, Um, but the, the the education that made me the most qualified to speak on all this stuff is the fact that I have been homeless. And that's after having the the hub operation supervisor position and being a sales manager. So people say, well, how oh my God, how does somebody who has all that stuff going on become homeless? And well, it, it is complicated <laughs> to say the least. So my situation came about from mental health issues. I de- I dealt with PTSD, anxiety, depression, uh, no substance abuse. Fortunately, uh, my my depression was so bad at one time that I didn't even want to drink or do drugs. That's how depressed I was. Wow. Yeah. So I I spent a couple of years milling around before I even. Uh, started really working on myself and we are going to talk about the mental health recovery aspects of this but basically um, I burned a lot of bridges with family and friends Uh, sometimes I set the water on fire Uh, out of my friends that I had before all this stuff happened there are only two that I still have any contact with Uh, the rest have uh, um, they forgot that I existed they uh flush me down the memory hole. And I, I can't say that I don't disagree with them. And I flushed some of them down the memory hole because uh, some of them, it was uh, part of their toxicity that, that led me to uh, my conditions, uh, you know, where I was at and everything. And right. uh, I, there were some that I, they were wonderful people, but because they were in the same 
type of mindset and same type of environment that I when when I came out of the shelter and, and was reestablishing myself, I didn't I didn't resume contact because that would be kind of a trigger for me. Right. right. So, you know, it, it's like an AA, they talk about stay away from wet places and wet faces. Well, th- this this wasn't alcohol related, but it was the same idea. But it, it ultimately culminated with uh, not being able to hold down a job, uh, living in flea bag motels. I, I squatted in in some empty houses, couch surfed, and uh, just really a lot of people were shaking their head at me. And eventually, when I had burned all the bridges and everything else, my buddy's wife dropped me off in front of the in front of a VA hospital, said, go get your shit together. Cause I, and that's really all the, all, all that they could do. And right. it, it, it's really a tough situation. So what I want to talk about is um, the, the six stages of recovery and you have that graphic um, yep. and I'm going to tell my stories I'm going along and I'm, I'm going to be a little bit brief on it because th- this is difficult to talk about at times. So I don't want to get too far into it and, and have a hard time, but anyway, so I spent a couple of years uh, in the pre-contemplation stage. So pre-contemplation is you're, you're doing your thing. You're, you're, you have no idea that there's a problem or no inkling, no desire to change. None of that stuff is going on. Uh, you're just caught up in the madness. So you're just oblivious to everything else. Uh, so with my situation, I, I, I wasn't working regularly and, and making money and all that sort of stuff. Well, I, I want to go back to something else first. Um, sure. let, let's talk about what is homelessness. So homelessness, uh, we think of it as you don't have a place to call home. You don't right. have a permanent address. You don't have a roof over your head. Uh, and, and that is correct. Um, I expand that out because this is nuanced. It's not, you know, just looking at it and seeing it at face value, it's an inability to put a roof over your head. So you could take somebody that's homeless and give them a section eight voucher and put them in, in an apartment, but they still don't have the ability to put a roof over their own head and put food on the table. Okay. So we have to look at what is impeding the ability to put a roof over the head and food on the table. And a lot of times it's going to be mental illness. Uh, Sometimes it's going to be substance abuse, there's sometimes people are going to have an inability to maintain employment because of criminal records and and just all sorts of different things. Uh, crappy economy. Uh, the number of people that I have met that were doing everything right and wound up homeless. Uh, those people are kind of like unicorns. Yeah. So, and you do have like some of the working poor and, a lot of what I'm going to talk about is going to be anecdotal, but I think uh, I think it happens enough to where it can be considered uh, factual or legitimate. Now, granted, not everybody falls in the same category, so it's not cookie right. cutter. Um, but like uh, a lot of the people that I know that have been working poor, um, they're not particularly frugal. I mean, they're not going out. Well, sometimes they're trying to go out and buy fancy cars that are outside their budget, uh, but they're they're not living frugally. They're they're spending money on things that they can't really afford, and you can justify it with, 
I, I, I need to, I need to treat myself good once in a while so that it perks up my mental health. And I get that. Right. right. Uh, the, the question is to what degree and does it benefit you more to, to perk up your, uh, your ego and self-esteem, or does it benefit you to not spend that money and save it for later? Uh, a lot of these folks have the high type, high time preference, and they have a tendency to spend money as fast as they get it. Now, uh, and and even even worse, if you ask them where the money went, they can't really tell you. So, but that's the, like I said, well, that's they, not they, everybody. They, that that's something that we see all- a lot of. Right. And they often have no perspective of money management like that. They right. they grew up in a household that was, as you put it, you know, they might they might be in housing. So they aren't homeless, quote unquote. But absent that housing, they would be homeless. And after however many generations of that, they don't really have a perspective of money management. We see this all the time with people that go from, you know, poverty to, you know, extreme wealth. And they often lose it very quickly because they have no idea how to manage money. And, and you know, yeah. unless either they figure it out or someone helps them, then they often end up, you know, being poor again because they just do a bunch of conspicuous consumption and, and, you know, I finally have it type spending and, uh, and, and end up with, with nothing as a result. It it was all, they spent it all on butter and nothing on actual like property and, and, you know, things that would gain value in investments and things like that. Yeah. I, we see this with people that when the, when these super duper mega billions lottery yes. drawings, yes. you know, they, they go from moderate middle income uh, or low income to multimillionaires. And within four yep. years, the vast majority of them are broke. Yep. I mean, they're, they're broke. They're trying to get on public assistance in some cases. Yep. Yep. And, and, and you'll see people that uh, young people, they'll go out and, and they'll get uh uh, a new job, a big fancy job with a big giant paycheck, and and they're buying these expensive sports cars, but they can't afford to put gas in them. Right. So I mean, yeah, it's it, it, it's a it's a very poor understanding of money and finances and and how to use it. Um, but and also you got to look at, at it signals when you have inflation and you can't you can't earn interest putting it in the bank. Uh, that lets you know that you know, hey, this is a time to spend. You know, so Keynesianism does have that that uh, impact where it gives you a bad signals. Oh, yeah. But so my, my thing is, and I, I really started learning about economics in in the last place that I was living. So I was selling cars, selling used cars at this uh, uh, guaranteed finance lot. So I was dealing with a lot of people like me coming in, and uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very interesting. Uh, I, I learned a lot living out there, but uh, I started learning about economics because I started learning about trade-offs, opportunity costs, you know, just figuring out how I was going to, how I was going to spend my money. And at the time, uh, my average, my average grocery budget for a week was 20 to 30 bucks. And there was one time where I spent like 60 bucks because I had just gotten a paycheck and I was living high on the hog. And all I had was this, this flea bag motel room with uh with a little mini fridge and a microwave in there yeah i did it, it was it was bad when i when i first got to that place I, I i thought i'd hit rock bottom at the at the motel before that and and then also staying in the in the empty house once uh once the family that lived there got evicted right. and uh i i got there and i was just my my sensibilities were offended by it 
And the really bad part was when I got used to it. And after being there for like three weeks or something like that, uh, I, 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 I wasn't so bothered by it anymore. I wasn't so offended by it, but I said that I was going home one night after work. And when I, when I refer to that place as home, it's like, holy cow, what a mess. You know, I, I just normalized this crappiness. So right. one somebody had asked me, it says, who in their right mind would want to be homeless? Exactly. I wasn't in my right mind. I was dealing with the mental health issues and everything else, but also I was dealing with some stinking thinking. I was greatly in denial as to how bad things were. And I had had a lot of people that had tried to help me and everything else. And, and when you're in that pre-contemplative stage, you are very resistant. You deny that there's a problem. Um, I, I viewed myself as I was going to be, uh, everything was going to be okay. I was, I was so close to making it and, and my ship coming in and whatever phrase you want to use. And why can't these people see that I'm so close to getting it? And meanwhile, they're just watching me swirl down the drain. And that's what so I was doing. That, but in that time, in the, you were convinced that you were just, you know, moments or days away from getting out of this. And meanwhile, yeah. anyone objectively looking at it would be like, this is only going to get worse. Right. Right. So I, I think the I, I think you and I have discussed that when uh, when uh, I visited you a couple of years yeah. ago, yeah. Uh, there, yeah. there's a there's a discussion that I've had that I've done several times. It's called how and why does stuff happen? And I use the example of the of the uh, underpants gnomes and everything else. And it's you look at what are your goals? What, what is the end result that, that you're looking for out of this? And how are your methods going to get you there? So if you would have asked me how my methods were going to get me out of that, I would have, I would have been emphatic about how many underpants I was going to steal and, and how good I was going to be after I had that big old pile of underpants. Right, right. Because right. that's where I was. So when, when you're dealing with somebody that's in that state of mind, the, the denial that there's a problem, the, being oblivious that there's a problem, uh, you can't tell them there's a problem. So you have a history of substance abuse and recovery. Uh, these right. Anybody that's dealt with any sort of recovery of their own or somebody that's really close to them, be it mental health, quitting smoking, quitting drugs and alcohol, something like that, you may not know these phrases or the, as these six steps by the words or um, – you know, that it's an actual thing, but I'm, I'm sure that you all are, are quite familiar with what's going on here. So you have somebody that's doing drugs and they haven't hit their bottom yet. And you try to talk to them about their problem. What is the response? Spike. Oh, oh, every, uh, my response was, you know, look at how well I'm doing with that. Cause I, I also had the I guess benefit of, I was financially successful. And so I'd say, everything's mm -hmm. fine. Look at all this money I'm making. And, you know, look at everything's going great. And people are like, you are always doing drugs. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, look at how everything's going. It's going fine. Now, if I hadn't been making money, and then I would also say, I'm getting it under control. Like, I, it's under control. Mm -hmm. It's not going to get any worse and so on and so forth. If I hadn't had the leaning on the I'm making all this money thing, I'd be saying, I'm getting it under control. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Uh, I don't have a problem and, uh, and something along those lines. 
Yeah. And, and when people are caught up in their madness, uh, they are very good at uh, rationalizing it and explaining it away. Uh, it, it's kind of like when uh, it, it's kind of like when you vote for when you support a politician, they get elected and then they do the opposite of what they promised. And they're able to explain why that happened. And no, they no, they didn't do that. But if they did do that, they had a damn good reason for doing it. But they didn't right, do it, right, so right. it doesn't matter. So Best I mean, it's, excuses. There, there's yeah. really a lot. Yeah, and there's there's really a lot of uh, nonsensical thinking that goes with it. So when we're dealing with people that are on the streets, as far as homelessness goes, uh, what what is your goal? for helping them. Uh, and this is where we're going to be interactive, not just me telling my story. And if, if people want to uh, want to type in in spike, if you can read those comments off, you know, what are the things that, that you would like to see happen? Uh, but you have to keep in mind that if they're not ready for change, then they're not going to be responsive to it. Um, yeah, if, if everyone uh, that's watching, if you want to put in the comments, what, what would be your goals you know, uh, and, and you can define that however you want to. What would be your goals and the things you and we'll we'll read those off that the goals that you would want to see in ending or alleviating the conditions of homelessness. I, I can tell you mine basically go into three main, uh, I guess, um, three main areas. One is getting rid of any working on getting rid of or, or reforming, basically getting rid of uh, anything that is happening at the government level local state or federal identifying those things that are exacerbating these conditions making them worse creating these conditions and getting rid of them acknowledging them and acknowledging that it's actually making it worse that the as you put it you know uh, uh do something ism the the you know we got to we got to do something uh, is often making it worse and fixing yes. that because that's that's an externality that's an external thing that you know even if you go through these these stages of change and everything else, you're now fighting a more uphill battle than you should be because of external factors that you have no control over. So identifying those and, and getting rid of those. Uh, mm -hmm. Another one is dealing with the immediate acute needs of people that are in a bad situation with homelessness, like making sure that a homeless person doesn't uh, doesn't starve or making sure that a homeless person doesn't commit suicide. And when I say making sure trying to have people go out and, and, and help people that are in that situation so that their acu immediate acute needs that are a matter of survival are handled in the meantime that we're trying to figure out what we do. And then that third one is kind of the, it's actually kind of number two in the underpants gnomes thing, as you keep bringing up that, that third one is like what, identifying the, now that, okay, we've, we've dealt with immediate immediate concerns. So the person's not going to die. We, or, or, you know, or is less likely to die or suffer, you know, permanently permanent injury or something like that. We, we we're working on getting rid of bad policy. That's making these things worse. Now let's look at what's actually causing this to happen. And it, obviously understanding that every person's situation is different, but generally speaking, what are the telltale signs of this? And what, if anything, can we be doing to help people? And what, if anything, can we be saying to folks to, or, or what conditions are needed for that person to decide it's time? And then how can we help them along without, you know, enabling them? So that, those are kind of the three main, three main areas I'm, I'm, I, I'm I would glad. say. I'm glad that you just said help them without enabling them. So here's where uh, I'm probably going to rain on a few people's parades. Uh, 
So let's talk about incentives and signals, disincentives, perverse incentives, and things like this. Um, so we know that people respond to signals and incentives. Uh, we can evidence this by um, people leave uh, leave an industry to go work in a new industry. So the new industry, uh, let, let's 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 look at uh, the the web based industry. So a lot of people end up going into computer programming and and all this other stuff, and they left industries that were dying out or were tapering down. So we know that there was a lot of money to be made in the computer industry and right. all the web-based stuff. So that drew people there. We know that when one city is having a, is, is having a slow economy, people go to another city or another state that is booming, that has a, a bunch of new jobs going on. And because right. there's a demand, they're paying more people, paying people more to go to those places. Uh, we've seen the migration uh, both geographically and professionally so many times that I, th I think we could call that settled science. So here's the thing. Um, if you have people living in a homeless encampment and you want to make them, uh, you want to make sure that they, that they don't go hungry, that they don't starve to death, that they don't freeze and all this other stuff. Right. Uh, what impact is, going out there and dropping off meals every day, bringing them clothing, blankets, things like that, going to have on them uh, deciding that they want to go in and not be homeless anymore. Because when you make that lifestyle sustainable through that help, uh, the urgency to change, meaning the hitting bottom, uh, gets prolonged. And the longer they stay in that situation, the more difficult it is to uh, get out of it. I remember Tom Woods talking about uh, Charles Murray. I can't remember what his, what his specialty is, but he talked about incentive programs. <clears throat> and the, the, the question they posed to his students, and I've done this with interns, like psych, psychology and social work interns, <clears throat> I, I would say, come up with an incentive program. Let's say to quit smoking. Come up with an incentive program that will get people to quit smoking. It has to be good enough to get them to quit smoking, but not so great to induce people to start smoking. And they look at me like, huh? And I'm, I'm a former smoker. I, I'm a little bit over five and a half years now. I haven't even had a cheater puff. So if you would have offered me 20 bucks to quit smoking 10 years ago, I would have laughed at you. If you would have offered me 20 bucks to quit smoking on the morning, morning of December 11th of 2015, I would have taken it because that was my quit day. If you were offered it to me the day before, I probably would have taken it. Right. Um, two months before, probably not because I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking about quitting at the time. So, 20 bucks is not a heck of an inducement to get me to change bad behavior. Unless of right. course I was already planning on changing it. Okay. So how much would it take to get me to quit smoking or how much would it quit get take to get you to quit doing what you're doing, whatever your vice is or was. So 2000. Eh, okay. You have my attention. 20,000 sign me up, bro. So, how many people do you think would start smoking in order to collect the 20,000 to get the 20 grand? Yeah. 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 
Yeah. So to find the spot where it's great enough to get somebody to stop doing something, but not so great as to get other people to start doing it to get the same thing. So the, the people that say, well, we got to have rules. Uh, they try to reform the idea, which is why I don't like reformers. Uh, if, if something's in a constant state of reform, it means that they've gotten it wrong the, the entire time they've been doing it. Right, uh, right. So they, they come up with rules and they say, all right, well, you have to smoke for at least 24 months and you have to smoke at least a pack a day. And let's say there's some scanner or blood test that they can do to measure this. So right, right. if somebody is only at 18 months or only at 12 months or 18 months, whatever, and they're at three quarters of a pack a day, um, they have to kick it up to they have to smoke a full pack a day longer. and they have to keep smoking for an extra 12 to, to or six to 12 months in order to get right. that $20,000. Right. So the longer we smoke, the harder it is to quit. And particularly when you add the more in there. And trust me, I smoked for like 30, 31 years. So what we see here is we have this brilliant idea of we're going to offer incentives to get people to engage in good behavior. And sometimes it's going to get people to continue bad behavior or start bad behavior because politicians have this thing of well i have to do something or i have to have a political platform so i'm going to solve this i'm going to solve this problem that doesn't exist by creating a problem that can't be solved yeah. does that make sense so yes. here we have the here we have the unintended consequences or the blind stupidity or the hubris you know which, which really fuels most political actions uh hubris stupidity ego everything else there's not a right. whole lot of uh of uh good ideas out there as a matter of fact uh somebody was saying you know anarchy means no rulers not no rules and and to play devil's advocate i say well maybe it should mean no rules because when you look at rules what are they they are a restriction on the way that you're allowed to do something and the more tightly restricted something is the, the more you structure it the less opportunity you have for improvement because you get down to where you only have one option for a way to do something and if you if you try to change anything at all it is outside the rules does that make sense right right so in order for rules to be respected i'm gonna i'm gonna go after do a little basti out here the, the rules must first be respectable. So I will say, do we need rules? Well, in a vague and general term or gen, vague and general meaning, like you said, no, we don't. We should have rules that focus on right instead of wrong, smart right. instead of dumb, and they should not create more problems than what they were supposed to solve. And they, and they do need to solve the original problem. So when we look at the prohibition of alcohol, we know from the statistics that it was supposed to cure, cure all these ills of society, meaning the, right. the health stuff, the cirrhosis of the liver and everything else, uh, reduce the it's domestic violence and yep. all this other yep. stuff. But because of the perverse incentives of illicit markets, it created the turf wars of the gangs. So you had gangland rub outs. You had the St. Valentine's Day massacre. I think the, the single greatest year for police deaths was during the prohibition of alcohol because they had gangsters shooting it out with the cops. Uh, 
you had more health, uh, alcohol related health problems, because when you prohibit alcohol and the, the punishment for um, beer and whiskey are the same, but you can make much more money off of a truckload of whiskey than you can off a truckload of beer. You encourage people to smuggle beer. Right. Or, I'm sorry, smuggle whiskey. So now yeah. you have stronger alcohol instead of the weaker alcohol because you can charge more for it. And a lot of people right. have complained about about uh, cannabis because you can't get dirt weed anymore. All this stuff now is is you, you, you smoke one, and you got to turn down the radio to be able to read. Cause that's how strong it is. So, so we have these perverse incentives in there. So what happens when you take food and clothing and tents and all this other stuff out to a homeless encampment, does it prolong them from coming in? And, and, and this, I'm, I'm not trying to say don't do it. I, this is something that we don't have the answer to. This is an unknown. Right. I, I know, think it's probably, it, it's probably a mix of things because I, I will tell you, I have heard other formerly homeless people that have said what you're saying that, you know, going out and, and providing food and providing housing or, you know, tents or providing tarps or providing care packages or whatever. It, it's more to, you know, enable homeless people and make the person giving feel better than to actually fix the problem. And it actually prolongs it. But then I've also heard other homeless people who said, I was in a homeless camp with a bunch of other people who were addicts. We all were convinced no one cared about us and it was worthless to even try. And it was when people came out and provided us with food and tarps and, and you know, care products. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it made us realize that life was even worth living and that there was anyone that even cared about us. And it made us feel like there was a reason to, to reach out for help. And now that's why I'm not. So it probably the answer, again, going back to nuance, it's probably that it's it takes all kinds and that there are different responses that people are going to have based on why they're even out there in the first place. Well, it's also based upon where they are in the, in their stages of in the, change. In their stages. So, right, right, right. Yeah. So somebody in the pre-contemplation phase, a lot of times they are going to be completely hopeless, believing that there's no opportunity for change, that this is their lot in their life. It's inevitable and nothing is ever going to make it better. Uh, Dan, you know, it, it's the mentality of surrender. It's the person who is beaten. So right. if somebody does come out there and you said that somebody came out and, and gave them tarps and food and stuff like that, and that inspired them, that, that motivated them, that took them to the contemplation phase to where right. they started believing that there's a possibility of change, uh, not really sure about it, lacking the confidence to move forward, uh, scared, stuffless, you know, the, all that stuff, because yeah. once again, they're not in their right mind. I mean, it, th there is a trauma to being homeless. Of uh, it's yeah. And it's, it's outside of our norm. And, and w when they're in this contemplation phase, they, they start thinking, you know, maybe I can, maybe there is a possibility. So when you have people that go out there and they talk to these folks, now keep in mind, if they're not interested, they're, they're going to, they're not going to listen. They're not going to pay attention. They're going to take your food and then they're going to run away and go do their thing. Okay. Um, but I, it's like trying to try and talk Liberty to, or talk uh, free market economics to a democratic socialist. Right. So you, you're, you're kind of wasting your time there. Uh, so they're not open to it, but in the contemplation phase, they are open to it. And you can do something called motivational interviewing and motivational interviewing is kind of the Socratic method of 
of uh, recovery discussion. Now, what what would you like to do? Now, what is your goal? Uh, do you want to get out of here and go back to work? Do you want to have your own place? Um, what are the things that you want to do that you used to do, but you can't do anymore because of your situation? What are the things that you would like to try in the future? Now, and it, it, it's, it's setting up goals. It's, it's giving people hope. And when people do have hope, that is something, um, I, I know they say hope is not a strategy, but it's, it's the first step. So right. when they're in that contemplation phase, they're recognizing there's an issue. They think there's a possibility. They're not real strong on it, but then they start go, moving into the preparation and determination phase. So going, I'm going to go back on my story a little bit. So by the time I got to the, to the last motel, the, the, the last flea bag, on uh, on the avenue and oh that was that was a rough area that that wasn't in the hood so um but it was like the the redneck version of the hood anyway i was in the pre-contemplation stage and i was just like you know whatever although i still had my delusions that i that I was like one one slick move away from getting out of there right so, right right then I started realizing because I, I I had I had some really tough times and that's when I started the contemplation and I, I felt a little bit better about my situation and I felt that it could be reversed but it it wasn't quite the delusional thinking of being one move away from from hitting the you know hitting the 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 winning ticket so to speak um, but I was really, really strongly thinking about it. And, and then I, I started to hit rock bottom. So I was working at that car joint and I was doing great. Um, my first month I was, I think the number four or five in sales in the Metro Detroit region. This is my first month. I'm beating, I'm beating people that have been there for years doing this. And I'm just knocking it out left and right. But I wound up getting fired because I couldn't get to work on time. So I never made a second month. And I, I did pretty well in spite of where my mind was at the time. I mean, I, I, I think that if I went back there now, I'd be killing it. I mean, I'd, I'd have like a 100% close rate. Where and you, I, also I think have I, the stru- you also have the structure to get there on time now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I... It, well, it turned out I had sleep apnea, but I also had the mental health stuff going on too. So right, I, right, that, right. I, that there, there's a lot going on there. So um, getting into the, getting into the prepar- preparation determination, I'd lost that job. I was looking around for other jobs. Now here's something else. It was July. I think it was, it was pretty hot that, that, that month. And I didn't have transportation. So going you know, I, I had the, I had Telegraph Avenue in that area to, uh, were my places for working. So there's fast food joints and there were some other car lots and everything else. Um, I would have had to walk to work every day and it would have been a lot further than it was at this place. But you know what, it wasn't going through my mind. Okay. So if I get a job at the car lot two miles down the road, but I can't get to this one on time, how am I supposed to get to the other one? I wasn't thinking that. So I, I kind of had the, the, the tunnel vision blinders on of, you know, okay, I just got to get another job and, and 
there's a there's a belief that if I get another job and get another place to live, then all my problems are going to go away. And that's not true because the problem was inside my head. The problem was me. So it wasn't a gun to my head. It was a gun in my head, so to speak. So you see where I'm going with that? Yeah, right, right, right. So eventually uh, I ran out of money and I called my buddy up and I'd been couch surfing at his place and he put me out of there and, and into that motel, uh, dropped me off over there, said, you know, hey, pull it together. I called him and, and uh, he won't let me come back. And I said, well, can you find a, a homeless shelter for me? And that was when I was, that was when I really started hitting my bottom. So that was my determination. That was when I said, I can't do this. And his wife had went online and uh, because as a veteran, she found a, she found a program for veterans um, and called out there and they said, I'd have to go to the VA and they could send me over and everything else. And, and uh, um, I stayed there for, uh, she, she picked me up on the morning that I moved out and uh, took me over to the VA and dropped me off. And I went inside and I, I spoke with one of the social workers and uh, well, at, let me go back to the registration. So I'd never been, I'd never been into the VA before because, you know, back then I mean, it was, it was really bad. And that's just not something that you did. You know, that was for people that didn't have anything else. You know, it, it, it's kind of the pride thing of, you know, not going on the dole with the government. And I had to realize that my way of doing things wasn't working. So that's why I had to make a change. And I remember going in there and I was talking to the guy in, in uh, registration and um, I was in a, I was, I was in a pretty bad place, you know, because I was, I was admitting defeat. I, I, I told him that I was there for homeless services that day. Cause he asked if I needed a immediate appointment and I just started to break down because there, there's a, uh, the the mindset of I should be independent. I should be able to put a roof over my head and I have failed because I haven't done the basic human survival thing. I haven't been able to provide food and shelter for myself. And that is the ultimate feeling of failure. And it really, really hit me hard, but that recognizing that, I wasn't able to do it on my own. And uh, they talk about this in AA and NA to realize that you have to make a change and the change is beyond your own power and you're going to have to bring somebody else in. So in in this case, it was mental health treatment. Uh, For them, they talk about the higher power in, uh, in the AA and NA. Right. And yeah, since I'm a non-believer that higher power thing doesn't really work. Uh, but but the it was realized is the same it is it is that that fulcrum or whatever that leads to that catalyst that leads yeah. to that change and in your case it was a it was actual like you know um, um an actual like program rehabbing the to to fix the problem yeah so i i finish up with that and, and i tell you what that guy was great uh it's 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 easy to talk about government employees and and they don't care and they're just tax eaters and stuff like that and in some cases it's true uh there's a lot of people in the va and and other agencies for that matter that 
they they have uh they have head marks on their desk from banging their head on the desk because of how <laughs> how stupid stuff can get and how many impediments there are to actually doing the job and and providing care to people and everything else so it's you know it it is it, it's not all ticket punching drums. There are a lot no, of people fact, that, I, that sincerely I, I, care. And yeah, go ahead. I actually, I actually met a, um, someone over the weekend and she, uh, she was part of one of the people at this concerned veterans of America event that I was, that I was um, speaking at. And she is, um, I forget where she is, but she's one of the people in the, I forget what it's called. I think veterans crisis network. It's basically a VA run, um, uh, uh, number that you can call 24 seven yeah. if you're in crisis. And, um, and she was talking about, you know, cause I, you know, I'm going up to her and talking and obviously, you know, she works for the federal government. Right. But, you know, I'm talking to her and all she talked about was how frustrated she was by, you know, the, the bureaucracy. And she said, and, you know, she said the vast majority of people I work with, they are having to do everything they can to keep their sanity because they try to take on as many people as they can and take as many calls as they can do as much as they can to try to because they know the lives they've saved and and you know it's what fuels them but at the same time you know they're struggling themselves and it's just they're just trying to help as many people as they can and you know you can't you can't beat up someone who's trying to help people, you know, even if their employer sucks, you know, that's not right. their fault that their employer sucks, right? Like they're trying their best to help people and they see that as the, 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 the most viable uh, path for them to be able to do so. Yeah. The first social worker that I talked to, uh, she was an old timer. Gosh, she was, I think she was like 73 at the time. And I don't even think she's retired yet. Now I, she, she'd been in the game forever and a day and very knowledgeable you could you could sit down and talk to her and she just had this wealth of knowledge and understanding and she she really knew what she was talking about and you if you could get her to to uh kind of go into the subject she'll talk about all the times that she had break rules to be able to help people and give them the the care that they needed and everything else. So it's, it's, it's kind of crazy in that regard. Uh, but like I said, just, a, just an absolute wealth of knowledge. I, I learned so much from her out of like casual conversations. So I'm doing my, I'm doing my intake with her and she's asking me all these questions and I'm thinking to myself, do I have to lie to get in here? Do I have to say that I'm a certain level of bleeped up or do I have to, uh, say, no, I'm not, you know, I don't have this going on because that would exclude me uh, because it was the wrong type of bleeped up. And it, right. you know, when you're not, when you're not in your right mindset that. like that, you know, you're thinking a lot of dumb stuff. Right. 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 So um, I wound up uh, uh, doing a couple days inpatient, mostly in storage because um, to send me over to the place that they were going to send me was not a good idea. Uh, I was a little bit too fragile at the time to go over there. And that place is kind of, uh, yeah, uh, not the best place to okay. put it mildly. I mean, it, it's probably better than nothing, but is definitely not my, in my top 10 list of places I would want to go okay. under the worst of circumstances. So anyway, uh, uh, I wound up uh, getting placed in, in an actual VA facility. And I, I thought that, 
I liked the the idea of how it was set up. And by the way, I spent my 40th birthday in there. So I, oh, I wow. turned 40 a couple of days after I arrived. Um, so anyway, it's a, it was an inpatient homeless program uh, focusing on mental health issues. So it's not like inpatient, like psych ward. Uh, I, I used to joke that it was minimum security. So they, one that you, you have a roof over your head, you got some structure. Uh, the smoke breaks were were at a certain time. Uh, you couldn't just take off and come and go as you pleased and things like that. Right. But unlike a lot of the other shelters, you didn't have to leave in the morning and then not come back until nighttime. Right. So, so they had some, they had some classes during the day. They had some group therapy and I found that I, I noticed that a lot of it was geared towards substance abuse and, uh, much less towards mental health. And I didn't have a substance abuse problem. Uh, like I had said, when I was at my worst, I was too depressed to drink or do drugs. Wow. So I, I didn't feel that incredible. What's that? I said, that's incredible. That is, yeah. that is pretty, you're, you're in a very interesting place. If you're like, I don't even care enough to get high. I just don't. Even, right. That's wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was never really a drug user. Uh, I smoked a little weed in high school. I didn't like it. And all the other stuff scared the hell out of me. But uh, so I, I I found that that aspect didn't work so much for me, uh, but they did have like some life skills classes, and I felt that a lot of that was pretty basic. Uh, I I still participated. Uh, the big thing was I I had decided, you know, because when they did the orientation uh, to decide if if uh, where I would decide if I'm a good if it's a good fit for me, they're talking about all these rules and. Uh, when I realized I was at the action phase, and and this is where you, you you've gone past the the preparation of saying okay I gotta do something and coming up with an idea, this is actually putting that idea into place. So at this point, I determined that as I mentioned before, my way of doing it wasn't working. So Dr. Phil would say, "How's that shit working out for you, numb nuts?" And I would say it isn't. So at this point, I had surrendered to the idea that I was going to need help to do this. And I swallowed my pride and I said, okay, you got these stupid rules about when I can smoke. Well, fine. I'll deal with it. Um, you got these rules about time that you go to bed and time that you get up and all this other stuff. I'll deal with it. Uh, you want me to participate in classes? No problem. And I did. And I feel that I was quite conscientious about the participation, uh, there's a few times where I kind of phoned it in, but I, for the most part, uh, I didn't go in there and screw things up. Right. So, so you were, I you had were solidly, you were solid, solidly in the, in the action phase at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So what I did was I, I, I came up with a goal and my goal was I wanted to be self-sufficient again. I wanted to be able to put a roof over my head. I wanted to, have a decent job. I want to pay my own way. I wanted to be able to enjoy the things that I hadn't done in a long time. Uh, I hadn't been camping in a couple of years. I hadn't traveled. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that I had not done that I had taken for granted a couple of years before. You know, it was just a given that it was going to happen. You know, that I was going to go on the annual camping trip and, and all this other stuff. So I really wanted to avoid like getting on a section eight voucher. Uh, I wanted to avoid getting on food stamps and all this other stuff. And there were a lot of people there. So there's a variety of people that were in there and some of them 
this was like their first time. Some of them, this is like the second or third time. Some of them, uh, there's a couple people that had been bouncing from program to program, state to state for years and years and years. So th- this was their lifestyle was living in a living in homeless programs. So there, there's yeah. not a cookie cutter, but it was really amazing how many people had the idea of defeat. And I looked at, uh, I looked at like the, the, the different welfare benefits of public assistance as some, somebody that's trying to stay off drugs would look at the dope man. Right. So I really wanted to avoid that because I know that it can be a roach motel where you check in and you don't check out. And I've, I've seen plenty of people that did that. Um, and there, there were guys that they got on the, on the housing vouchers and the food stamps and they got some little chump change disability. And I, I see them a few years later and they're still in the same spot. Right. And I did not want that sort of a lifestyle. So I determined that I want to have my own place. I started thinking about where do I want to live? What city do I want to live in? Do I want to have an apartment? Do I want to have a house? You know, how do I want it to be decorated? And I started, I was very goal oriented on this and, and thinking about what I want my future to look like. And I want to, I want to create that future. So I had to be realistic about it, but you know, I, I also had to have dreams. So I wanted to have a car. I want to have all this stuff. So I had to look at what did I have to do to get there? What methods did I have to use to attain these goals? Uh, do I have to steal underpants or do I have to get a job and save money and all this other stuff? Now, I spent just short of nine months in there. And one of the problems was, and, and this wasn't just for me, this is for a lot of people, uh, you get comfortable in there. So just like I got comfortable in the uh, flea bag motels and, and stuff like that, I also got comfortable in the, in the, in the program there. Uh, When you, how can I phrase this? There needs to be a motivation to improve. Uh, but so I, I guess if you, uh, if you put stipulations on people, um, they say, okay, uh, in order to, in order to stay here, you have to do X, X, and X. Um, and th- this is something I've seen with unemployment. Uh, there's a, a requirement to fill out X number of job applications per week to maintain right, your right, unemployment. Right. So the yeah. person that's looking for a new job is going to blow past the minimum requirement because they're looking for a job. The person that wants to write it out is going to phone it in on the job applications. So they're going to, they're going to pick the the five least likely places for, to call them. And they're going to put in the worst possible resume to ensure that they don't get called. Right. But they can They're say that they have the motions to meet the metrics to, to stay on the program. Right. 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 They're, they're checking the boxes is what they're doing. So you can, you can put requirements on people, but that doesn't guarantee the result. So and I saw a lot of people that did this and I, and I have to admit I did it. I wasn't working as diligently as I should have been. Uh, granted I, I wasn't in a great mental health place, but I also wasn't working on that as diligently as I should have been, but I did have the goals and everything else. And 
as I move forward, uh, I wasn't there very long and I, I, I really started to snap out of it. And particularly, uh, I inserted myself into the community that was there. And I very quickly went from new guy to, I don't want to say in crowd cause that makes it sound like, like high school, but, uh, uh, I, I, I got respect of the other people that were in there and they knew that I wasn't just, you know, some doofus ditty bopper basically. So th- yeah. they, they saw that there was something there and I wound up getting into, into like leadership positions. Um, I was, I was there maybe a month or so and, um, I became one of the, uh, uh, residential assistants. So that was kind of a leadership position. Um, so, so to speak, uh, and I would like, uh, one of the things I would do is when, when new people came in during the day, I would, uh, I would do the, uh, the briefing when they got there and welcome them and, and go through all their stuff. And if they had any contraband or whatever, uh, get rid of it and, and all this stuff. Um, so, yeah, so I, not, I was like one of the first people that they would see, and I wasn't staff. So I, I think it was pretty smart that they did that. It was, it was probably less intimidating to the people when they arrived, but I remember the, the van ride over there from the hospital and the guy, uh, the guy says to me, he says, so what brings you in here? And I says, Oh, mental health and, you know, all messed up, got to pull it together. And he says, good. That shows that, that you're, that you're looking at uh, pulling yourself together, you know, because, there's a lot of times right, where, you, right. where if you ask somebody, Hey, what brought you here? And they'll say the van, what do you think brought me here? And you know, that person's not ready because they're or not they'll, recognizing they'll blame why it on there. someone else. They'll blame it on yeah. some other thing, external thing that has nothing to do with them. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that guy says to me, he says, yeah, nobody winds up here on the winning streak. So anyway, that that's the action phase um, working on it and, and pulling it together. Now, once you're in there for a while, I'd, I already mentioned that it was very easy to get comfortable. And a lot of people did that. Uh, the The day that I moved out, I got to tell you, I had some anxiety like you wouldn't believe. Oh, I'd I imagine. Am, yeah, of course. I was leaving. I'd, I'd been there like three days short of nine months. And I was uh, in the morning time, that's when the anxiety started. I didn't leave until I closed the business and I, I'd already, uh, uh, got a job and I wound up working at the VA over there. And, um, I wound up getting the, the job and I had been working for a couple of weeks. And I took that day off to move out and everything. And, uh, in, in, in one regard, I was excited for it, but I was really scared because after the nine months of being there, of not having to worry about paying bills, buying food and all of our stuff and taking care of myself. Uh, I had, a, I was responsible for doing that. And right. not to mention, I wasn't exactly paying bills for the couple of years before that. You know, in, in some cases I was like one step ahead of the bill collectors. You know, it's, you know, it, it was really rough. I had not been taking care of myself like an adult does 
for quite some time. And now I have right. to, now I am responsible for this. And that really scared the hell out of me. And I've always been a pretty strong willed, independent minded person. And here I am scared to death about this. So in that regard, uh, you can see where people get domesticated. So one of the things that, that we've seen over the years is uh, when, when people wind up on like the housing vouchers, the section eight and all that other stuff, uh, they get very comfortable. They're scared to go out and they're also afraid to lose the voucher. They're afraid to lose the food stamps. And I've seen people that were offered, uh, there was a position that the VA offered. It, it wasn't a job. It wasn't a job as a placement, uh, transitional work. And um, the, the person could make like 750 bucks a month tax-free because it's uh it's, it's a work program uh, to get people prepared to go out and, and get real jobs and everything. And right. he didn't want to give up his $200 a month food stamps, which he didn't have to do anything for. Those were guaranteed, but he had to put in the 20 hours a week to get that 750 a month. Wow. And, and, and this happens. Now it's not everybody, but when, when somebody has so become even, institutionalized so or, so even by working, he didn't lose the food stamps, but just the fact that he'd have to work for it was enough for him to. Well, that uh, having an income impacts food stamps. Okay. Okay. So I mean, if, 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 if you go out and collect $50 worth of returnable bottles or recyclables um, and you claim it, they're going to, they're going to deduct from your food stamp benefit. Okay. So anyway, um, there's, there's a level of security. Um, even though you're in poverty, there's a level of security that is provided. And if you lack the confidence to be able to take care of yourself, then you're going to be stuck in poverty. And this, the, the solution isn't to give them more money on food stamps because you still have somebody that's homeless or they're still some, they're still unable to put a roof over their head and foot, put food on their table. So that's why I always say that the housing voucher and the food stamps is not the solution. It's a perpetuation of the real problem. Right. So I, I guess what we want to look at is uh, when it comes to helping people out, how can you help them without hurting them? Uh, the the mental health care is very important. So it, it's hard to it's hard to hold down a job when you have mental health issues, and if mental health is only available during work hours, then how do you do both? How do you choose? And a lot of people will skip the mental health because they got to pay the rent. Right. Yep. Yep. You know, you spend nine months in the shelter and you got you got a blank spot in your resume. How do you explain that away? Right. By the way, the, the, the job that I took at the Detroit VA and I was down there for three and a half years was I was working in vocational rehabilitation. Uh, so when I when I got hired in because of my previous experience in industry and also being homeless, I got hired to do voc rehab for the homeless program. There were five of us that were hired and all five of us had gone through the system. And that is one thing that was very brilliant on their part uh, was getting people that had been through the system that well, yeah, had an course, understanding. Yeah. 
that right. they could go out to the different shelters and talk to people and know what's what. So, but anyway, so how do we help people without hurting them? How do we help them without enabling them and prolonging things? And have, have we had any responses uh, in the chat? Yeah. So here we're. Let me. Or is, um, there, or is everybody logged off already? Say so we'll discuss. No, 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 no. We still. We still got people. Hold on. Let me. Um, let me go and see what we have here in the comments. Um, that was a while back in the comments. So uh, here are a few of them, um, and a lot of these I'm kind of packaging them together. Uh, help raise their uh, the uh, awareness of their situation to others. Um, destigmatization of mental health issues. Um, uh, normalization of, of neurodiversity, so people that are like autistic and things like that. Um, 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 de- I, coming up with a way to deal with the, uh, the the homeless camps rather than just you know closing them down and taking property from everyone that's there. Um, uh, allowing people and businesses to give to the poor uh, instead of forcing them to throw food away. Um, th- this is. Um, this is actually an interesting thing. So I, where I live in Myrtle Beach, we have enough food. And, I, and obviously, you don't want to just give so much food to everyone that, you know, they're, they're never going to work. So it is that balance of how, like you said, how do you help them without hurting them or enabling them? Right. But it's wild that you have, because of regulations, it's illegal for me to go and feed homeless people without getting this license as a licensed charity, which is, mm-hmm. you know, thousands of dollars to get and to maintain and having health inspectors check my food. But you have restaurants that have already gone through the whole health inspection process. They've already made food that the government has said is perfectly fit, uh, safe to buy and to eat. And then once that restaurant closes, that food magically becomes unsafe for anyone to eat. And they right. can't give it away. They can't uh, give it to their – they can't even give it to their uh, workers, employees to take home. They literally have to throw it away, and it is regularly checked by uh, health inspectors who will go into the dumpsters and pour bleach into the dumpsters just to make sure that no one, you know, eats it without dying, you know, for their for their health and their safety. And so that that's one of the, the other things people said. Okay. So uh, going to the stigmatization, that's a very important thing. Um, part of what I've done in my work, like when I was down there um, talking to somebody and, and, listening to their story, how they got to where they are. And a lot of times people are resistant to therapy. So you kind of have to bring them along to the idea that, that they want to get therapy, that they want to make that change. So that's where the motivational interviewing comes in that I talked about earlier. Uh, But if, if we think about what therapy is, it's nothing more than consulting or, talking to somebody who knows something. So let's say I have to do a brake job on, on my truck and I haven't done a brake job in years. Um, but you, you have the same type of truck. You did a brake job six months ago. And I ask you, Hey, Spike, uh, what do I need to know to do a brake job? And you say, well, I'll do this, that, and the other thing, blah, blah, blah. Right. Now, or maybe you come over and you supervise me doing it. So, in that regard, that's not a whole lot more. That's not a whole lot different from therapy because what you're doing is with therapy, you have a problem that you don't understand or that you can't solve on your own, and you're going to somebody else to do it. And there, there wouldn't, there shouldn't be a stigma about uh, dealing with the emotional issues. 
any more than there should be a stigma with going to physical therapy after an automobile accident. Right. Right. And does that make sense? But yeah, because we are humans and, and we, we think weird stuff, we do have that stigma that goes on and people become embarrassed by it. And it, it really perpetuates things. It, it, it prolongs the, the issues It makes them worse o- over time. And it, makes it more difficult to reverse these things. Now, if, if people could nip stuff in the bud, I mean, that'd be, that'd be the ideal thing or better yet, if they, if they didn't get broken in the first place. And right. one of the things that, that we know about a lot of mental health issues is um, a, a fair portion of it is trauma-based like borderline right. personality disorder is completely trauma-based and I don't know how much experience you have with dealing with borderlines, but uh, it's it's very interesting. Right. Well, and it started as a coping mechanism, right? Like it, it, it became a way to cope and now it's just turned into a, a full blown, a full blown problem with, with borderline and the disassociating and that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I don't know that I would call it a coping mechanism. Uh maybe in a weird abstract way possibly or maybe you're saying it in a way that i'm not that's not ringing to me but okay uh it's basically yeah somebody that's just really messed up and has a lot of stuff going on and the behaviors that come out of it um i've dealt with a couple people that were a little bit borderline i've dealt with people that were stark raving borderline and trust me the raving ones are it's it's exhausting yeah but so, yeah, so the, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, so at, at this point we've been talking about the, the things needed to get into the action phase and, mm-hmm. and, and helping people along there, you know, where, where is that transition into maintenance? Like when, when does that, what, what are the, the, uh, the attributes of going from action to maintenance? Mm-hmm. So the, the action phase is the the doing and once once you have started to once you have entered recovery now there's a difference between being in recovery and with the example of drug and alcohol just having a little bit of clean time so recovery is a state of mind recovery is i am going to leave the stuff behind i'm going to move forward i'm not going to engage in these sorts of behaviors um, I'm going to change my way of thinking and it's actually doing it. So the maintenance is doing little self-evaluations here and there. So where the line is for between action and maintenance, I guess, I guess it's very subjective. It's hard to say. I would say that it's at the point to where you are, where you feel that you are more in control than less in control. Now, okay. maybe at the okay. 51% mark, I, I don't know. But the maintenance is uh, doing your follow-up appointments with a mental health provider or catching a meeting, uh, talking to people, self-evaluations, you know, thinking about where you are, uh, where you want to be. And one of the things about, about the self-evaluation is it's very difficult for people to be honest about themselves. A lot of people will gloss over failings or they will they will blow minor failings into super failings so it it is very hard for people to uh, be objective in that regard Uh, they're very good at at uh viewing other people objectively but not themselves so and and that's a common human 
human difficulty. Right. So the, the maintenance is maintaining sobriety, maintaining uh, the mental health. If somebody like, let's say, uh, let's say they have bipolar disorder and they're starting to feel manic, uh, that would be reaching out to a provider, uh, maybe medication checks or right. a variety of other interventions that can happen. Okay. Okay. And then once so, they're at a point of, of maintenance there, um, then the final stage, or I guess it's not really final, but, oh, well, no. Okay. So the maintenance, so the recurrence is, cause I'm doing this where, you know, we're, we're zoomed in for yeah. people that are looking at this on their phone. Um, so I didn't see what the next one was. So recurrence is when something could happen that could pull you back to, to square one, or at least back down the, to the stages of change. So like a, basically a relapse for, for back, lack of a better yeah. word. So, so what I have on, on my cheat sheet here is relapse and termination. So relapse is a part of recovery. Um, many people are going to slip. Now, is it actually a slip or is it a full-blown slide? Um, right. And there's a difference between uh, being in recovery and having three weeks clean because you weren't able to get drugs or whatever, or you were locked up in jail well you could get jail and drugs but uh, maybe you're in a rehab and you didn't have easy access to drugs whatever right, right, right. Uh, so i this this is something that can happen there is a risk of it there's a there's a risk that i could have a cigarette uh next week it's a very low risk uh i would say that it's extremely unlikely but there is a risk of it that it could happen no matter right, how minute yeah no yeah. matter how minute it is so um, it, it is something that could happen, but the termination would be like the ending of the active, uh, treatment, so to speak. So it, I guess it would be a continued, uh, maintenance. So this is either the, you can either go with the five stages of change or the six stages of change. I think this recurrence is, is just an addition to the, to the five, so yeah, if it, it basically uh, makes it into a cycle that if you don't get the recurrent, that if you don't, you know, address the recurrences, deal with them and get back into maintenance, it can slide you all the way back to square one. Um, yeah, which is why you don't deny them, you just acknowledge them and, um, you know, and then determine how to get back into me or work your way back into maintenance, because it says, you know, here, it says primary task is cope with consequences and determine what to do next. So it's, you know, figure out what you've done how, what it's going to lead to, and then figure out how to get back to where you're, you know, at your goal, your, your, you know, your achieved goals and, and maintaining them. Yeah. Now, now something that goes along with maintenance, um, there's a thing called wellness recovery action plan. And years ago, I went through this course, um, on the patient level and then at, then on the facilitator instructor level. So, uh, I wound up getting certified as a peer support specialist, which is kind of like a, a sponsor of sorts. It's somebody who's been through mental health issues or whatever it is, and they right. help with navigating the system, reinforce things that the therapists talk about. And um, yeah, basically a sponsor of sorts, except getting paid to do it. Uh, but anyway, um, the wellness recovery action plan, and this is for somebody who is in their recovery. It's a way to, uh, prevent relapses. So example, writing down what your triggers are, uh, what the, 
uh, what it looks like, what you do when you're starting to relapse. Um, as an example, uh, somebody with uh, depression, um, hygiene goes out the window. Uh, right, the neatness right. of their household goes out the window. And you, if, if somebody usually keeps a pretty clean house and, and then you see that there's mail piled up for, for a month straight and, and they haven't vacuumed and all this other stuff, you, you know that there's probably something going on there. So that's right, a little right, right. And also, it's also identifying people that you could go to for support and all these different things. But yeah, so I, I, I think we've covered the, the stages of change here. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I think we've addressed the, the homeless stuff and, and we're not going to come up with any real answers, but the, no, the one thing that, that I do want to stress is uh, do not let your good intentions cause more harm. Right. And you have to figure out what is the balance. If you, if you feed people in the, in the camp, are they going to stay out there longer? Right. You know, right. If you right. give people a housing voucher um, and especially over a long period of time, are they going to become independent or are they going to become more dependent? Right. So what is your goal? Do you want these people to be able to take care of themselves? And I, as a, as libertarians, I think, uh, I think we want to see people be independent. We don't want to see people, uh, dependent upon drugs or government, you know, I, both are, are highly addictive. Yep. <laughs> and so, also make sure that your make sure that your good intentions are actually good intentions. Uh, I, I will admit when I went to one of the homeless camps and I'm there and I'm feeling in a, there was a moment where I was feeling great about the fact that I was there and talking with them and raising awareness and working with the local group that was helping them and, you know, coming up with ways that we can go to the, uh, you know, local legislatures to talk about ending their, their uh, what they call clean sweep policies, which is basically where the police come in, take all their stuff and, you know, expect them to scatter like roaches. When the reality is these are people you just stole all their stuff and put them in dumpsters. Now what? Now what are they supposed mm-hmm. to do? And, and so we're, we're talking about all these things. And then at one point I thought, make sure that you're not doing this because it's making you feel good and make sure you're actually centered on the people who don't get to leave here, shower, put on a jacket and go to the studio to get interviewed by Kennedy. Like that, that was, you know, it's like I'm here until four and then I have to get back so I can go and get ready for a five o'clock because I was on, um, uh, I was on uh, uh, Mountain Time. Uh, you know, make sure you're 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 there in time for that. Like, make sure that you are staying in the right mindset of why you're even doing this to begin with. Make sure your good intentions don't turn into wow. This makes me feel like it's like internal virtue signaling of like mm-hmm. wow. Look at what a great person I am. Make sure you're actually there with an intention of helping this person because sometimes that's going to actually feel like crap. It's not going to feel good. Sometimes it'll feel good. Right. Sometimes it'll feel like garbage because you're dealing with people that whose lives are, are you know, are on, on the precipice of being ruined or in some cases have been ruined. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the people that are doing it solely for their own aggrandizement, uh, they're not going to feel guilty about it. They, they're going right. to get the warm and fuzzies and they can say, look how kind and compassionate and progressive I am. I was talking right. to that filthy derelict over there. Right. Right. And, and, yeah. and, and quite frankly, there's, there's a lot of that out there. Of course, of course, of course. So yeah. um, now when, when it comes to like different charitable stuff, uh, I, 
I'm a supporter of charity. Um, I give to the, to the local food bank up here. Um, I know that some of the people getting the stuff are not going to be what I would deem to be deserving of it. But I know that by giving to the, to the local food bank, that there's a possibility that's going to happen. Um, right. I, I donate stuff that, uh, like canned goods and things like that. Um, old clothes that I can't use that they're, they're still serviceable old furniture, things like that. But I, I, I think that when the libertarians talk about how there would be all this private charity, I do think that the charity does do the enabling and you have that uh, perverse incentive. And right. something I've seen is people would, um, they would focus their efforts on getting different charity type things instead of uh, working Bettering on themselves. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something, it's something that I saw around the different homeless programs is you would have people going in there to get them signed up for uh, uh, food stamps or different right. services, different programs. Medicaid and things like that. Their, their income was based upon the grants that they get from getting people signed up. Right. So if a person is going to lose their housing voucher and their food stamps because they have a certain amount of income, uh, the, the people that are getting them on vouchers have a incentive to keep them out of the workforce. Right. Right. Because they have to keep their numbers up. Yeah. So you have a you have a lot of times where the different programs to so-called help these people out are working against each other. Right, right, right. Well, like you said, it's a perverse incentive. And it's what happens the minute government goes, oh, this is great what they're doing. We're going to give them money to help. Well, what and we're going to, you know, give them money to help sign them up for our, our you know, uh, break your leg and, and buy your crutches programs. Um, this is. And like you said, what happens is now you have charities, ostensibly private charities, who are being incentivized with taxpayer money not to actually help people, but to just put them on a program. And they can convince themselves, well, I'm helping these folks because now they get you know the health care they need, they get the food they need. It's a, it's a pretty understandably compelling argument that they're making to themselves that they're helping people. But the reality is, like you said, they're actually discouraging people from doing things like working and investing right. in the things that are going. And it's not you know investing as in they're going to become a millionaire, but investing as in working, putting aside 25 Five fifty bucks at a time to have some kind of a nest egg that they're building, fixing their credit so that they can actually get you know a loan that they need to be able to get a car or you know or to be able to get uh, you know their credit up so that they can get their own apartment and, and and try to claw their way up. And yes, we need to be working on dismantling anything from government that is making that harder, like dismantling programs that you know make housing prices go up and make uh, pr uh, pricing for food and, and education and things go up and healthcare and all that make those things go up. But at the same time, we need not be incentivizing the very programs and policies that lead to the need for that crutch in the first place. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like you said, we can we can talk about this uh, kind of endlessly. Um, and we are coming up onto the third hour. And unlike in the past, this program is usually 60 minutes long now. Uh, but let's talk real. <laughs> Eat it, Paul. Talk, yeah, no, no. This is a yeah, this is a whole different thing now. We, we mm -hmm. usually uh, go between. Uh, right. uh, so uh, so there are a couple more things I want to touch on. Okay, so I had mentioned I 
mentioned that on the day that I moved out, I was really scared stuffless. Uh, later on that night, I, I think it was about one in the morning, I had woken up and I looked over and I saw that I saw that there wasn't a second bed in, in my new apartment. And I didn't right. have a, a fat, bald guy snoring his brains out. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I can get used to this. And I, I started to adjust pretty quickly, but there was there was an awful lot of nervousness and I, I always I always say the person leaves the shelter twice. First time their butt leaves, second time their mind leaves. And mm. you do have to get out of that shelter mentality. Um, and it's even worse for people coming out of jail. So they get institutionalized in there and they're used to the environment where they have to watch your back and, and all this sort of stuff. And you don't just turn that off by flicking a switch. It's same thing with, with soldiers coming back from combat zones. You know, somebody somebody does a, a tour in Iraq or Afghanistan and they come back here, they see a bag of garbage on the, on the side of the road over there. Right. It's, it could be a bomb and they have the same problem over here because they can't turn it off and say, Oh, that's just a bag of garbage or a right. kid with a cell phone is not just a kid with a cell phone. It's a spotter or a trigger it's man so, yeah, or whatever. A spotter it is. Or someone that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it takes quite a bit to readjust to reality. I, one of the things I saw uh, homeless people was how they responded down the road. Um, they would, I, people would either say, uh, I'm going to do everything I can to never wind up in that situation again. So they would put money off to the side. They would have food. You know, they, they, they were, they basically became preppers. It's kind of like the, the people in the great depression after the great depression, everybody had canned goods. They did their own canning and, and they always had food laying around for the most part. Uh, so you'll see people that'll do that and, and, and they will prepare for in case of hard times down the road. And then you also have people that say, well, I, I was homeless once I'll be homeless again. And I'll just let the system take right. care of me. Right. Right. So it's. Yeah, so they, they, people either plan to prevent it, plan for if or when it does happen, or they just, you know, surrender. And right. I think at that point they're defeated. So, right. but yeah, I, I was I was down there for about three and a half years, and, and uh, I was I was kind of new to libertarianism at the time. So I I said to myself, I said, well, maybe I can go inside the system and use the system to fix the system, and well. Now you know why I laugh at people to say that. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. really work. So, um, so yeah, I, I before before I let you go, I do want to talk about Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. Um, yes. tell us a little bit about it. Um, it is where it is. I'll, I'm gonna put the while you're talking about it. I'm gonna put the link to the website in the uh, in the notes so people can check it out later. Um, but tell us a little bit about it. So this is the ninth annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, and this started off a number of years ago, uh, nine to be exact, or would it be eight years technically? Uh, anyway, this started. The first one was in 2013, and it started out with a group of people sitting in a cold, or sitting in a Michigan living room in the month of like February or March, and it was cold and snowy and Michigan-y outside, and they said, "Hey, we should go camping this summer." And eventually, it evolved into saying hey let's let's make a big event and you know right. go beyond the six or seven people that were in that living room and it wound up being a facebook event and um that was how i got connected with those folks because i somebody had shared it and here i was thinking i was the only anarchist on facebook or the the only the only one in michigan whatever and uh 
so I, I, I wound, wound up uh, signing up to go and everything else. And, and I wound up uh, connecting with some of the people on Facebook and then connecting in real life. And uh, this has been my family ever since. But uh, this year it's going to be out in Gaines, Michigan. It's going to be on a private farm. Um, the fest is, it's uh, both adult and family friendly. So uh, somehow or another, people have managed to figure out how to how to behave themselves appropriately and uh, around appropriate company and everything else. Without laws, um, without laws, yeah, without laws. Managed to do, that's incredible. Yeah, I, somehow or another, through spontaneous order, uh, standards and acceptable behavior magically appear. Well, that's I, incredible. Granted, there's a bunch of stolen underpants in the bushes, but yes, you know, yes. we only take and as many no as we roads. need to make. And not a single road. Everyone has to walk right. there. Right. <laughs> right. So, if so people, if we people, only steal enough underpants to make this happen. But right. anyway, no, uh, that's, go ahead. This 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 isn't going to be quite as fancy as in previous years when it was out at Circle Pines. So, like I said, this is a private farm. Um, as far as guest speakers, there's not going to be a lot of guest speakers there. Not a lot of big names, but uh, Brett Vinat from School Sucks. He's a very popular favorite. Uh, people love when he comes out there, and they love Brett, and they love what he's done over these years. Uh, I'm a bit of a fan myself. Anyway, he's going to be doing a uh, discomfort zone live on Friday night. And then the school sucks graduation on Saturday. Uh, Shane Radliff is going to be doing a presentation on Posnia and that will be after the biscuits and gravy cook off. So Posnia is a personal autonomous zone uh, that he has created. And he's going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, okay. I thought it should be called uh, Pazistan, but whatever. I mean, if he's going to create his own autonomous zone, I guess he should be able to name it. Uh, yeah, I mean, Posnia so is this... pretty, pretty, pretty good name. I could, yeah. uh, Pazistan or Posnia are pretty good. Yeah. So Saturday morning, biscuits and gravy cook off. Uh, after Shane's presentation, there is going to be a special announcement that, well, I know what it is, but uh, I guess everybody's just going to have to go to the fest to find out what it's going to be. So, but anyway, uh, on Friday, there's going to be the Magical Mystery Tour hike, which will be offsite at a local uh, park. And yes, it, it, Magical Mystery is exactly how it sounds. Uh, there's going to be karaoke, open mic comedy, and the Whiskey Chicks will be there uh, every night except for, I think, Saturday because they're already booked. But the Whiskey Chicks, they got this uh, this little trailer with a bar in it, and they uh, they serve whiskey. So you can get whiskey from chicks. And then what that else? Oh, yeah, the Assault Kitchen will be going. Yes, so the assault uh, kitchen is is cooking bacon in the way that God intended. Yes, yes, high capacity magazines. Um, yes, I will have my famous smoke porchetta, the verified harmful extremist content porchetta. I uh, think that'll be a Saturday night. I'll do ribeyes on Friday. Uh, not sure if I'll do ribs or what else for the other nights, but uh, my young apprentice Nick will be back, so he'll be doing breakfast in the morning at the Second Breakfast Cafe, omelets and hash browns, and uh, he might be doing some late night tacos or something. I don't know. We, we got to figure the it out. Founders, but... The founders could have never envisioned there being late night high capacity tacos. 
They could have never yeah. known. They wouldn't have possibly well, supported free food, freedom of food, well, if, never, if they had known that. Never live according to the limits of other people's imagination. Now, That's something else is new for this year. Uh, there's no cabins out there, so Joe was going to set up. And I, I think he's done a couple of them, but he ran into supply chain shortages. Uh, cabin tents. So it's basically a 10 by 10 easy up with a floor, screens, and walls. Uh, there's a self-inflating or self-maintaining air mattress in there, queen size. There's a, a little plastic dresser, table, a light, um, an outlet for charging devices and all of our stuff. And I think those are all sold out. Uh, but this is a trial run for that. So uh, I guess that's going to be his no-tell motel or whatever. But uh, yeah, so that's going on. Cool. So I, I cool. think this so thing's if- going to be... Yeah, it's gonna it be pretty, like it's, gonna be, it's gonna be even better next year. Yeah, it sounds like it's gonna be good this year, but better next year. So for people that want to uh, get a, be a part of this, uh, it's mplfest.org. I put that in the uh, in yes. The, um, Round up your friends the, and family and get them registered today. Yes. Register your friends. Registration for your safety and your health. Uh, mplfest.org. Yeah. Um, Lou, again, thank you so much for many things, for being on the show today, for being on the show the other times you've been on, for encouraging me to, being one of the people who encouraged me to do this, for being one of the ones who turned me into an extremist, harmful extremist radical that I am now. Uh, I appreciate all those things. I love you, man. I'm, I'm so happy to have you on. I, before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to, you, you have the final floor. Anything you feel like we haven't had a chance to say, uh, that you haven't had a chance to talk about, anything that you want to plug uh, this is your time. Lou Sander, the floor is yours. Uh, well, my website, as as you mentioned before, I am the absentee landlord of yes. MPL or, or LouSanderShow.com. Yes. Uh, that hasn't been, that hasn't been seized by commies because there's a lot of work that has to be done. So I haven't put out any any audio content in quite some time. Uh, I'm really strongly thinking about getting back into that. I'm in the uh, preparation determination phase of that. Uh, mm-hmm. matter of fact, I'm looking at putting together another radio show, but anywho, um, I do have some satire articles on there so you can read things like colonial lives matter. Facebook bans every single user for hate speech. Uh, FTC <laughs> cancels election due to unverified advertising, things like that. Wow. I like so, that. uh, yes. I, one of my upcoming articles when I finally get around to writing, it will be cannabis declares victory in the war on government. And uh, probably re-education camps will be done remotely until COVID is over. Well, I, I want to do, and if you can do one about the conservative response tw- 10 years from now to the, the uh, you know, mandatory lockdowns for climate change that they're going to say, not without a warrant, that's, that's yeah. the, uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that needs to be talked about, you know, and, and the fact that the, um, that the progressives will be happy that the, the re-education camp counselors are, you know, a, a record high number of, of trans people of color. Um, this mm-hmm. is, uh, it's, it, go ahead. Well, I, I was looking into one, so I, I discovered something. I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory, but there's been some documents uh, from the KGB and now the uh, FSB that Russian Spetsnaz were going to invade America and they were going to disarm all the Republicans by wearing American police uniforms and saying, Hey, we're going to own the libs. We need your guns. You know, Hey, do you got my six bra? 
Yeah. So yeah, I like like the I like the meme that where it's someone handing a gun over to a police officer and it says, "Okay, but you promise to give me back, give me this back in case I have to fight you if tyranny ever arises." Right? The cop's (laughs) like, "Of course, sure thing." It's the funniest thing. So, hey man, thank you again for being on. I really greatly appreciate it. Uh, uh, LouSandersShow.com, MPLFest.com org um and uh stick around i want to talk with you during the outro folks thanks again for tuning into this episode of my fellow americans uh very very informative you got to to see one of my uh, i guess mentors in the game firsthand so thank you for tuning in for that um tomorrow night is uh the writer's block with my co-host matt wright uh he's going to be interviewing byron cabbage who is helping put together uh this event in kentucky i'm going to be going to uh this weekend where we're going to be training for uh activists and candidates for the uh, lp kentucky uh across the uh, across the state of Kentucky in multiple events uh and it all kicks off on Friday at 6:30 at the Florence Y'all's baseball game where I am going to either embarrass myself in front of the world or I'm going to actually get the ball to the catcher and he doesn't have to move much to catch it which is what I hope happens and then I'm going to be so obnoxious I'm going to pose next to their trophies if they have any i'm gonna have them ice down my shoulder i'm gonna want to do color commentary for the whole game with whoever their broadcaster is it's i'm gonna be really bad about it but anyway so check me out that uh and also uh at 9 30 on friday uh right here on muddy waters media check out uh cajun and eskimo from bayou to igloo and then on uh saturday and sunday i'm doing events all through uh, the uh, through Kentucky. If you go to SpikeCohen.com or to LPKY.org, you can find out more information about the events that I'm doing. Uh, and then on uh, Monday is the next episode uh, right here on Money Waters Media of the of Mister of the Mister Mirica, the Bearded Truth with Jason Lyon. That is on at I believe 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, and then uh, join us next Tuesday uh, for uh, the next episode of My Fellow American. Uh, Next episode of the Muddy Waters of Freedom on Tuesday, where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the sweet little chipper little monkeys that we are. And then uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, uh, Muddy Waters of Freedom. And then right back here next week, same spike place, same spike time for another fantastic episode of My Fellow Americans with my next guest, Olga Meshu Washington. What are we going to talk about? You're not going to believe it. Folks, thanks again for tuning in so much. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys.
like mine. Sometimes darkness is all I find. You know what they say about an eye for an eye in a time when the blind leads the blind. Who am I to deny when crying when a loved one dies? I recognize that body outside when the holes in the body that was alive. Now they find a chalk outline. Find out how, but you never know why. It ain't even make it to the news at night. It ain't even make it to the news at night. That's my sister, mother, father, brother, son. That's one of mine. All these tears, I close my eyes. Open up to only find I'm in line. There's a pointless murder happening all the time. Why?